When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, my fellow Astorians. It's Monday. It's time for our spoiler-filled, filled, packed to the brim with spoilers, review of season one, which, of course, includes a look ahead in some cases. Else, where would the spoilers be coming from, you, you would otherwise ask, if we weren't looking ahead? So that's going to be a lot of fun. And to discuss this excellent wide open topic, we've brought along two of our good friends who have been on before, and hopefully you are already listeners to their show. It's the Learned Learned Hands Pod. We're so glad to have you all. Mary and Clint are back. How's it going, y'all? You know, it's going really well for me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think less good for Clint. Uh, that's uh, yeah. I went to the Astros World Series parade today, so uh, you know, it's been a it's been a good day for me. That's pretty cool. My team beat your team last year, but last, our right. our rival could not beat you, so that that works out pretty well. You know, <laughs> by the transitive property, you are a right. once again World Series champion. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Braves win again. Yes, somehow we we'll, we'll have our own parade here in my living room. Uh, <laughs> but yes, yeah, so Clint, you um, you're bravely uh, putting yourself forward on this podcast tonight. You you don't have a victory hat. You have a a different uh, symbol. Of, of ominousness here. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, I'm a Giants fan, and the Giants won three world titles in the 2010s. They sure did. Not super fun, so we're just letting everybody else have their, their fun uh, until we start winning again. So, you know, enjoy, both of you. <laughs> um, yeah, as the folks alluded to, um, I just tested positive for COVID today, so I'm going to do my best uh, to power on through. But, you know, just... So, you know, if I say anything stupid, that's the COVID talking. <laughs> if I say anything that you like, that's me. Okay. <laughs> that's a good clarification. And yeah. I totally, uh, I'm on board with that logic completely. There's no argument there. Yeah. You tested like three hours ago, right? You just posted on Twitter. Yeah, I happened to be looking. Long. I was like, oh, no, that's, he's coming yeah, on yeah. tonight. Uh, <laughs> hopefully that isn't too bad. So that's, it's great that you're still here. We'll, uh, we'll have a good time here. So, a couple of items to take care of before we get into our the meat of the episode. Of course, y'all are welcome to send in questions. We're going to have, as we said, some review of Season 1, looking forward on some things. We're also going to talk about a few legal issues within the... Legal questions within the fandom, uh, within the, the story. Of course, that's the thing to do when you have actual lawyers on your show as guests. And that's something you all have been talking about a lot on your show, as usual. But there's this is a particularly juicy... Uh, set of questions. There's so many things that come up, like precedent and who's the, who really gets to inherit things, claims. There's a, there's a lot of stuff, as y'all probably already guessed. But so there's a lot to talk about. Our schedule is going to change now that the show is over. We're still going to talk show stuff on and off. We're going to allow some of y'all to help decide what direction some of these episodes take. There's going to be some cases where we do character studies, which will allow us to do both book and show. Thankfully, this isn't like 
the original run where like book you're on and show you're on. You need like separate episodes for that. But if we were to talk, say, Harwin Strong, like the deviations aren't that big. You can fit them both together and talk to them side by side. It's not like, yeah, they're just not that different. So that should work out pretty well. So polls will be returning soon on Patreon as far as topics. And we're going to be moving back to Sundays at three like we were before the show and have been for the last several years, really, since the end of Game of Thrones, really. We've been at three o'clock on Sundays almost every Sunday. That'll be where we go back to. We pulled a lot of y'all on that and pretty overwhelmingly y'all wanted us to go back to Sunday. So that's the way it'll be until another show season rolls around and then presumably we'll go back to Mondays. Uh, I was in New York uh, and Ashea was in New Jersey. We both had some trips and had some fun. And uh, really got burying to... the lead with the, like, oh wow, we were in New York and New Jersey. The more important thing is that we saw George R. R. Martin speak. <laughs> I was getting to that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> George R. Martin, Neil Gaiman, and Kevin Smith. You saw Kevin Smith and George. I saw Neil Gaiman and George. That was really fun. Yeah, it was a really good chat. Um, I think the George R. R. Martin and Kevin Smith one is available to like Kevin Smith mall rat super fan. I, th- I, th- I think technically that one was recorded, but it was just oh. a good, like low key, like hour and a half chat between them. Nothing, no, like really nitty gritty details, but some really funny stories because Kevin Smith is a very funny guy. So he definitely got George talking about, uh, some interesting subjects, I'll just say. So it was a good time. <laughs> yeah. And I got yeah, to right see on. some, some, uh, listeners while I was there and other friends. And we'll be going to GotCon next month in Los Angeles. Exactly one month, just about. So if you're in Los wow. Angeles, um, hit us up. Yeah. We weren't planning on going, but we got some free tickets. So we'll go. That's a good reason to go. And Shay, you're also going to MAGFest, Yes. Huh? Not MAGAFest. MAGFest. <laughs> uh, for, it's Music and Gaming Festival. Good clarification. Yeah, that's up uh, in Maryland <laughs> at the beginning of January. And I figured I would mention it in case anyone who's local to the area is going. I'm really looking forward to the big 24-hour arcade. I'm going to play a lot of games. It'll be fun. Yeah, cool. Yeah, definitely say hey if you're going to be at either of those events. Let us know. You can reach out to us on Facebook or Discord or hit us up on Twitter. Send us an email at westrushistory at gmail.com. And that's that for our setup. Let's get to it. Choosing to end on Eamon and Luke. I think a lot of us saw that coming, maybe not at the beginning of the season, but even at the beginning of the season, it was a, it was a guess. It was like, this is, this is a, a place where they could end it. And then as things went on, it kind of became more and more clear that this was very likely where the way it was going to end. The more people thought yeah. about it, like you guys probably were talking about that on your show too a bit. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. And this is where we, we eventually decided it would end after about the first three episodes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. There was a chance blood and cheese would be included, but it seemed more likely that would be the beginning of the season, especially because it would require some new castings. Uh, and they like to do that within a, the season rather than at the end. So you can, sometimes that casting can tell you <laughs> where, like, we know we're not going to see Creek and Stark for one episode at the end of a season. Like, he'll be at the beginning of a season, maybe, but yeah, that's usually not how they do that because of the contracts and things like that. And it's kind of an interesting thing to think about just endings in a TV show, right? Like in a book. There's one ending per book, but a TV season has 10 endings. Each episode kind of has to have an mm-hmm. ending. And sometimes they're under a little pressure to make it an ending rather than just 
you know, to be continued. You know, it's, it's a little different that way. So, I mean, if you're being, if we're going to get into semantics there, a book has however many chapters has an ending, technically okay, speaking. That's fair. Yeah, and they can be that. relatively uh, significant or like they, you could do different parts. You could have like a part one and a part two. I don't know. That's true. I mean, I, I will yeah. argue with your point a little bit, but I get your, I, I still agree with you overall. To be so. fair, I also don't even know where they cut those books. Have you, either y'all, have you ever read the like divided versions? Like the, oh, the beasts? Like I don't even know where them. those are divided. I've never read those versions you know what one thing i was gonna say part of the reason i think george r martin translates so like everything he does translates so well to the screen is because he has a history of writing short stories and so you can almost find like all this embedded narrative structure and all these little endings within you know either a set of chapters or within a chapter um and i think if fire and blood almost does work that way like each chapter in fire and blood has its own uh, has its own little distinct end cap. Hmm. But what's so interesting to me is, I mean, this first season, what did it cover? Like one and a half, two of the Fire and Blood chapters? Not that much, yeah. really, yeah. Yeah, so that that's the... I, that's part of the lift for me, was to find the mini-stories uh, along the way to get to the climax. And I think they did a really good job with that. Yeah, I agree with that. What do you think, Clint? No, I totally agree. And I was just going to say that I really do think George embeds that that structure into his individual chapters almost all the time. Um, you know, especially you really, I think the point is driven home when you listen to chapter by chapter, you know, podcasts that, that you know, will like not a cast and Davos fingers and folks who are doing chapter by chapter. And when you guys are doing your Val- Valerie Redis stuff, you really see that narrative structure built in within each chapter. Um, and so in that way, game of Thrones is probably a little bit easier to adapt because you have that, you know, like, you know, for example, that in first season of game of Thrones, one of the chapters is going to end with Catelyn taking Tyrion at the end of the cross crossroads, yeah. because that's such a perfect ending moment. And, and as Mary mentioned, you don't, you, you do have some of that here, but it was really, for the most part, show invented moments to like punch off an end of a chapter. And I think that they did a really good job. Um, and I, I really liked, <laughs> I really liked the ending of this season. I think that, you know, we were talking um, on Learned Hands a lot about how you can't have a show called House of the Dragon. Um, where the dragons are such a big part of the marketing and not have a dragon battle. (laughs) Like you just can't do it. So you had to have one. And so we kind of working backwards from there, from that premise, which was correct. uh, (laughs) Then it had to be Luke and Jay. It was the only one, Uh, right? Luke and and Eamon. Yeah. Yeah. Unless they can invent one, which they didn't need to. And yeah, why would they do that? Yeah. Right. That's a good, yeah. Yeah, I I think big picture wise, like that, that was my biggest, uh, I think the biggest pro of ending there, it's not just the marketing stuff. I think thematically it's a perfect end cap. Um, and I wouldn't have necessarily guessed that. Uh, but then you get to the the way the show opens. You have the speech from Viserys and Viserys is talking about um, how dragons are a power that shouldn't be trifled with. And I think the show has this amazing theme running throughout it about violence being uncontrollable. Um, we get the idea of the beast beneath the boards that we got in episode nine. You know, it's not just the B 
beast beneath the board, but it's the beast within ourselves mm-hmm. with Aemond. Um, and it's his own kind of thirst for vengeance that puts him in that situation. And that's one of my favorite things about Fire and Blood is this parallel between you know dragons as uncontrollable and war and violence as uncontrollable mm. because they're, they're a stand-in for each other. That's the way George takes you know the theme of war and turns it up to thirteen. Right? Is that he he gives us dragons? And so I thought thematically that was just a, a perfect choice for the ending. Well said. Yeah, and it, ke- it keeps the idea of of confusion and and the theme of of power as well of of how power is used and how it it can be applied right. on a very personal level like Amond was bitter over having been not just losing his eye but over having been bullied prior to that and he was like he's he turning it around on him he'd been waiting for this moment it's like a very childish uh, no uh, desire for revenge but it's understandable it's believable you know it's it's authentic i think what do you think clint do you like the choice to end the season there as well, you thought it was I do, good. I do, and like I said, you know, I think that um, it's it, it fits. It had it gave us that dragon battle that everybody needed to see, <clears throat> and I, as Mary said, I think it properly sets the emotional and practical stakes of the game, um, and you know, gives everybody going forward an idea that oh, like with Game of Thrones, all bets are off from this point forward. You know, dragons are not capable of being controlled kids are going to die um it's going to get real ugly and rhaenyra as we see in that last iconic shot is you know not real happy about this situation <laughs> not, not so much and i think it's probably going to have some some things to say about it and do about it yeah yeah i thought emma was fantastic there um oh, yeah. their facial body acting mm-hmm. is Agreed. just incredible and the way that that shot parallels daenerys's look after Masande dies is just Ooh, so striking nice. to me um and that was just like a really really powerful piece of visual storytelling i think that kind of leads into my only con for this episode which is that i uh, this episode this ending i this was honestly one of the saddest episodes of television i've ever seen um mm. i wouldn't blame Amond and luke for it but i do in some ways the pacing means we got Rhaenyra learning about Viserys' death. We got the stillbirth of Visenya. And then we got it ending with the death of one of her children. And so for me, it was like three gut punches. Plus, you also get the, um, you know, the intimate partner violence in there as well. And so I thought it was like one of the most difficult episodes of television to watch. I mean, we opened with the, the first episode of the season had Emma's death, which I thought was very difficult, but very affecting. And this was just emotionally really downbeat. Um, and I, I don't think that's bad. I think it's really hard to tell this story and to be true to the material in Fire and Blood without being really heavy. But that's that's the only con that I, I have for choosing to end here. I think in particular, I was waiting a little bit for... Because my, my guess on how the season was going to end was with Damon saying, a son for a son. I guess we get that next um, season. You know, <laughs> yeah, I guess. And, you know, I totally understand why we didn't want to end with Damon, right? We wanted to yeah. focus on Rhaenyra yeah. this episode, yeah. so I'm not quibbling with it. But I do think that you, it being this really emotional 
Shit. Uh, Mary, you're skipping. Hmm. Oh, am I? You're yeah. back now. Oh, now you're back now, but yeah, you were skipped enough that uh, I had to say something. Hmm. But you're fine now, so. Okay. Um. Uh. I'm. I am done. So I'm gonna yeah. ch- while we while we move on, I'll check and see if there's something yes. wrong with my cool. Wi-Fi. Cool. Well, this leads us on to a, a similar, a related topic, um, which is how some of these characters will move forward and how they react to the escalating violence. We've seen a lot of nuance with some of these characters, as you just described. Emma's facial acting is really amazing. And by the way, y'all, isn't it kind of crazy to think that she was only, they were only in four episodes? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Olivia Cook as well. Four episodes. That's all. <laughs> Both of them were only four episodes. Like, wow. I mean, just, yeah. And it's all, it's so confusing. Like the name, I get that I, I, for the first time, really get why people are confused by Game of Thrones names, which it's always been easy to kind of understand. There's so many names to remember and some of them are similar. It's not like, I don't get it. It's just that I'm so immersed in it. It's I'm not confused by it. But I have been taking note of how similar the real world names are. We have Emma Darcy, but Emma Aaron, Emily Carey, <laughs> right? And then yeah, there's just this is all just. Are you, are you positing that George had a hand in the casting and just like <laughs> the call was? It's it's got to be sort of Targaryen. Uh... Even their real names have to <laughs> yeah, just yeah. immediately eliminate. Uh-huh. Anyone with a name that doesn't fit, like is your name Rachel? No, sorry, that's that doesn't no, work. Sarah, no, okay, we could do a Sarah. That works, but yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Anyway, so yes, yeah, so how are we gonna? It's gonna be really, really different. We're gonna be, we're gonna have Amond with his "What have I done?" face transitioning mm-hmm. to burn them all in the river, meaning the Riverlands being them and. Uh, do we? Th- it's in some ways, it's kind of straightforward. They're all going to lose family members. Uh, Eamon's going to, at that point, he's going to have lost. Like blood and cheese will have happened. And uh, in the show, Eamon and Helena have a closer relationship, so the loss of her child and the damage done to her is going to. He'll take that perhaps even more personally than the book version may or may not have been implied to take it. Uh, and speaking of these great actors, I mean. When Olivia loses her, when Allison loses her first child, we'll see Allison's uh, Olivia's acting there, and that's going to be like I dread how good she's going to be. The emotional oh, she's going to be, <laughs> she's going to be great. Yeah. So, what are some of y'all's thoughts? We'll start with you this time, Clint. What are some of your thoughts on how we can, how we'll transition from, you know, using Amon? I guess is one of the best examples from the, mm-hmm. the nuanced version into this maybe the book version that we we maybe first expected because some of that nuance is lost in the history book and you don't have an actor to, to really bring that out with body language and, and things like that. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I could see the show going either way with, with Eamon, but I, I really strongly believe that he is going to own what happened. He is going to say that he did that for a couple of different reasons. One, admitting that he lost control of Vagar is admitting to weakness. And that's one thing that we know that, Eamon really doesn't like doing. He he doesn't like, you know, people saying anything uh, bad about him. And I can imagine, I can absolutely imagine him blanching at the idea that he would have to, that he's he goes to mom and says, "I sorry, I couldn't control my dragon." Um, I think that that's not something that he's going to want to do. And then he's going to think on the flight home, "Look, the die is cast. It's done, um, and I might as well just own it." Um, as a way to kind of um, uh, increase his own power yeah. and his, his own 
you know, like to cast that shadow on the wall, to use the phrase that we all like using a little bit harder um, as being like just this total badass. Someone so fear, I think yeah. that he's going to do that. Um, and I think that him owning it in that way is going to harm his relationship with both Otto and Allison. Uh-huh. The book, point. in the book, both Allison and Otto are really pissed off yes. at payments <laughs> after this. Yeah. Um, and I think that they're going to lean into that. And, you know, Amond is going to say, okay, well, you're not supporting me when I, you know, I got vengeance. I struck a blow against a material um, military asset that the blacks have. And you guys are yelling at me. That's crazy. Um, and so I think that that rift will in turn set him up to be the kind of loose cannon that you talked about, mm. burn the riverlands and that he's going to be for the rest of the war. It really sets up that internal greens rift, which is, one thing that I think Game of Thrones, the show, and Game of Thrones, and, and A Song of Ice and Fire, the main novels, really do such a great job of of um, talking about rifts within factions. You know, like, the Lannisters are all on one side, but they all hate each other. Um, and that's one thing that we kind of miss in Fire and Blood. You really have to read for subtext a lot of the times. And I think that they're going to ma- be making that text um, mm. in the show for season two. Well said, well said. So related to that, we will have uh, other people, other characters that are in this core cast that will have reactions to the escalating violence and the loss of family members. We mentioned uh, just Olivia Cook from an acting perspective. But Mary, what do you think uh, the character, how how will she respond? Do you think she'll continue to be a semi-voice of reason or do you think losing a child, well, I guess she'll lose a grandchild first. And then just more family members escalating from there. Do you think that she's going to just go full violent or do you think there'll be more nuance? I wonder, I'm guess I'm guessing uh, trying to get at where some of the nuanced character portrayals will be as things escalate. You know, where, where are we going to have these great moments when there's so much war and violence spiraling all around and, and things get progressively bloodier? I'm really curious with with Alicent and the Greens generally, I think with Otto as well, whether or not what we're going to end up with is almost like a role reversal where all of a sudden we become very sympathetic towards both Otto and Alicent because they are now in a position of trying to um, fight back against the allied Damon and Aegon forces of violence. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm curious as of, of a lot of the nuance we get with Allison's character is going to be her reacting uh, and reckoning with who she put on the throne. Um, I think that that was to me in season in, uh, in episode nine, like one of the big symbols of you know, Melly breaking through the floor. It's not just that there's a dragon that, you know, it's not just that the dragon's the beast, the literal dragon is the beast beneath the boards. It's that you crowned Aegon and he is equally as uncontrollable. Mm. Um, and that's one of the things yeah. we learn in the books. Um, so I, I'm really curious if that's part of the character dynamic that we're going to get. Um, you know, I don't know how, I don't know how Allison will react to blood and cheese, but I suspect we're going to get some breathing room there. We're going to see her react to, 
um, we're going to get some reaction to the death of uh, we're going to get some reaction first to what Amon's done. Yeah, and right? then yeah, you're right. Yeah, they, they can't just quickly set all this up immediately. Like they have to actually reach out to Mazaria, presumably, and yeah, whatever mm-hmm. else, whatever else needs to ha- whatever our first steps need to happen before that before that goes down for sure. Here's an interesting little thing about Amond as a like a side topic and and relating to Helena and the setup they've done there. We noticed something on Twitter. Someone pointed out a, a curiosity that I looked into regarding the death timing of Amond, and they made it seem like Amond and Helena may have died on the same day, which isn't actually really? clear in Fire and Blood. I double checked, huh. and I think they made a little too much of this, but it's not off the table either it's just not explicit it's very explicit exactly what day Amon dies it's on the 22nd day of the fifth moon of 130 ac and then it says meanwhile in king's landing blah 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 and so what could what they way they could show it is Amon uh Amon's death being the trigger for helena to jump Hmm. oh that would be the reason that she kills herself rather than i mean she's got lots of other things that will be weighing on her and that'll be like the maybe the final straw uh and oh oh, but like yeah they're they're hitting at the same time is that sort of what we're getting at that she's Mm -hmm. that she jumps in response to him falling yeah that is what's implied in fire and blood um because we don't get a lot of dates there we don't but this is very specific something else that was really interesting to me on the amond and helena front is that the call sheet for amond's character before the season um had in the call sheet specifically mentioned he's in love with his sister helena Boom. Uh, <laughs> so, like, uh, whether you know, like, whether that's what they're continuing oh. to adapt, but that is Helamond is a thing. The call <laughs> sheet Helamond. said, Love and that. this was leaked from before the season even aired. And the original leak, wow. you know, had said that um, the original leak said he's a lover of history and learning and a skilled fighter. His potential for greatness is obvious. He's in love with his sister Helena and dislikes Aegon. He's like, and it was. The rest of that stuff has been true. Nice. So, um, <laughs> and in those same leaks, they talked about how they were maybe adapting a little bit of the Aegon the Fourth, Nerys, Aemon the Dragon Knight right. dynamic for this, um, which I think, I, I, I think was textual enough. Like watching it, I saw that transposed on the screen. Like it, it made sense to me. Yeah. Um, but I have seen people that were like, I mean, if you think about it, Aemond and Helena don't even speak to one another in season one of House of the Dragon. They yeah. never interact. They never have a conversation. Well, she doesn't really have a conversation with, with anyone. anyone. A conversation besides, yeah, with anyone right. except her mother mm-hmm. in that first scene that we ever get of her. And then later she's just saying things and occasionally someone responds to her. But yeah. So that's cool. Any re- I have, actually have a few more details to spread around and I'll get your guys' response to like this whole batch of, of connections. So remember how the, the sequence of events goes. Let's, let's, let's assume that this is a valid theory, not necessarily that it's confirmed, but let's say Eamon's death triggers Helena jumping. By the way, look at the similarity there. Eamon, they both fall to their death, but they both technically die before the fall. Eamon is, of course, impaled through the eye by Dark Sister. Helena hits one of the spikes. So it's not the, the force of the ground that hits her. It's her, being impaled uh, so through the neck so all, all, nearly the same spot you know what's funny too. too is that you think about in a song of ice and fire with Euron and the dreamers impaled you know oh impaled on spikes a, oh that's sick dreamers. I never thought of that <laughs> holy crap dreamers well that's that's, that's what I was oh. yeah I guess that's what I wonder if like she is 
you know, not fully lucid when she jumps, right? If she's caught in the middle of this prophetic dream and she maybe thinks that she can save Amond by jumping. Oh, it's like a fugue state. Yeah, it's like sleepwalking or something. Right. And we know from the book that she has after, you know, after Blood and Cheese, Helena is, loses more and more touch with reality. And so I kind of wonder if maybe she can't tell the difference anymore between like the dream world and the real world that's a fascinating take i could definitely see them playing it that way uh, it's a, it's a really compelling yet very tragic plot line and setup we also have dream and in blood and f- in fire and blood dream fire roars and breaks her chains when helena dies as well and that right. and, and the reaction to helena's death leads to the riots the storming of the dragon pit which is mm. which is kind of ironic that Amond did such a bad job of defending King's Landing, but the thing that got the blacks <laughs> kicked out of King's Landing was as if as if this was all connected. <laughs> Elena's death is what gets it's like the one who is not a warrior. <laughs> Her death gets the gets Rhaenyra off the throne. Meanwhile, Aemon with his huge dragon just goes around burning small castles. <laughs> yeah, we're, all, we're good there. And of course, in the show, Vagar roared when Aemon lost his eye as well. So there was. They've kind of expanded on this, and we got Damon when he got hit by the flaming arrow, and we got Rhaenyra and her pregnancy right. with Cyrax. So they're really leaning into this. So I feel like this is a very compelling angle for them to take something along these lines. So, Clint, what, we haven't heard from you in a minute. What do you think about all this uh, this supernatural dragon lore stuff as as a plot element? It's pretty cool, huh? I mean, I think it's great. I one of my favorite you know adaptational choices that they made was making Helena a dreamer, mm. and I think that I mean and in the book, it's not clear. So I'm not saying that, you know, it's, it's a change. Um, It's never mentioned, but that's not really something that would be mentioned by, I think any of the chroniclers or the histories. So it, you know, could have been something that George had in mind when he was writing it. But I also just really love that what they did with her um, to, to give her that, that power, excuse me. So I could totally see it that happening that way. And I think that that would be, really fucking metal <laughs> <laughs> yeah i've been going through some of our danny valaritas chapters to do like a smoother edit now that we have we have you know better quality editing software than we had when we first recorded those and i've noticed some of the similar like dragon i've been able to look back at some of the her dragon connection moments like when the dragons are down deep in the tunnel uh, and and like Viserion digs a, a, a little cave and Masande can kind of hear it but when Barrist when he's she's taking Quentin down there to see them they start reacting they can hear her before like well before she gets there she's like they know I'm coming you know like this it's like this is definitely like a mental mm. thing there's, this is some sort of bond thing uh, also as a as an aside i noticed while doing that there's the the same uh, city watch loyalty thing that's playing out in Marine with Skahas has been fired mm-hmm. as the captain of the mm-hmm. Brazen Beasts, but he's like, oh, they're still loyal to me though. Just like Damon with <laughs> the gold cloaks, he's like, oh yeah, some of those guys will be on my side still. So, but that's that's a whole other topic. Yeah. So th- this this is really neat. And now I see some notes from from one of y'all here that is real, another place I wanted to go. So that works out nicely. The relationship between Kristen Cole and everyone else is also going to change, most likely, when he gets promoted. Uh, This is a guy that will maybe his head will get a little bigger. He's already got (laughs) he's already you can already see how he's just ready to fight at any moment. Like this guy is ready to go. He, He doesn't take much for him to draw his sword or beat someone to death. But uh giving him more power 
that obviously that's the right thing to do with a person like that, right? <laughs> Someone who can't control his violent instincts, the best thing to do is to give in, to give him more soldiers and authority, right? <laughs> Absolutely. And with Aegon, and, and that fits so well with the idea of Aegon getting out of control. He not only is he out of control, but he appoints people that are gonna egg him on. I oh, yeah. <laughs> this guy, he may wear a white cloak, but he's covered in red flags, right? So. Uh, <laughs> and red really stands out on white, you know. Mm. So this, yeah. So who? One of y'all has this great note here. What is this? An extremely problematic warmongering sausage party. Yeah. Whichever you wrote that, please expand on that fabulous piece yeah. of writing there. <laughs> yeah. So I, I am um, one of the things I liked the most about uh, episode nine was that we got this dynamic between Kristen and Amond, right? It's sort of like weird buddy cop <laughs> dynamic, <laughs> yes. right? Uh, and then I think we're going to gonna get to see that we're gonna get to see that for sure more expand next season yes right we're going to see and we're gonna have a, a third element to the problematic war war mongering sausage party i wrote it but i can't say it. <laughs> um and that's that's Aegon. because i think when you get the the three of them together it's it's like this party of violent instigators that are going to bring out the the worst in each other. Uh, and I also think all of them have this really strange relationship with Alicent as well. Yeah. Um, obviously, there's the strange motherly dynamic between, you know, uh, Alicent and her kids, where she's very... She's not a very nurturing mother. Okay, mm. let's uh, let's put it yeah. that way. Maybe a little, um, maybe but protective, but not nurturing. Yeah, yeah, and it's. I think it's very clear to me that Amond wants to please her, um, but they also want to be their own people. Mm. And particularly between like Aegon and Alicent, there's a lot of um, he wants to be free from her berating for sure. And then you have Kristen who thinks he owes his life to Alicent. Um, so I think it's going to be a fascinating dynamic because I think the three dudes are going to bring out the worst in each other. And then they're also potentially going to do it with something to prove to Alicent, whether it's out of a misguided need to protect her or a need to prove themselves to her. Hmm. Um, and you know, that's a dynamic we just don't get in the books. Like you were saying, Clint, there's so much of these relationships are subtext. So that's one of the things I'm most interested to see come to life next season. Yeah, the Greens have a lot of rivalries between them, or at least have a lot set up. Like Cole and Amy, yeah. like you said, they have a little buddy thing going, but apparently they're going to have butt heads, according to Fire and Blood later, about how to conduct the, the military operations. And then you'll have Alicent, the jealousy of, say, Kristen Cole and Larry Strong over Alicent, or... Oh, that's right. Lara Strong right? is part of that problematic <laughs> warmongering sausage party, too. Yeah. He, he, see, and he's so good at it he, that you forgot he, about it. He him. loves the li little piggies. He <laughs> loves them so much. Yes. Uh, but no, I'm super curious to see how disillusioned any of them might be with Allison if they were to find out or suspect that something was going on with Alicent and Laris, you know, obviously I don't, I, oh, Aegon, Kristen yeah, Aegon doesn't have a lot to be disillusioned with. Cause I mean, he's already, you know, 
sees his mother maybe at her worst. Um, but Eamon, for example, as well, I, Kristen is obvious. Like, I feel like he could turn on a heel on Alicent. But I, I also am curious what Eamon would think if he saw that his mother and Laris were this close. You see it, yeah. Uh, yeah. Go ahead, Clint. Oh, I would, uh, no, I, I, I totally agree. And I think that that's totally on the table, um, especially given how pious, um, Alicent, you know, purports to be. She's chiding Kristen all the time for, you know, <laughs> saying bad words. <laughs> yes. Um, so I think that's totally on the table. I also think that the one green, prominent green that, um, I'm really interested to see what they go with. Um, or how he works out in season two is Otto. Because mm-hmm. yeah. in the book, and I just reread this part um, the yesterday, the book, the reason why the Tyroshi fleet, or is it the Tyroshi fleet? Yeah, or the, the, the like, triarchy. Fleet, same thing, yeah. The, the triarchy um, comes is because Otto invites them to come. Yeah, thing. the letter is worked. It's very, <laughs> it's very, it's very effective and he you know we saw but him it's also why he gets letters. fired because yeah, right? it takes the too long it's, yeah it it, <laughs> it it bears fruit after he gets fired yeah like he gets fired before that and it's really yeah. funny yeah they're like well um, you should have just kept otto in place shouldn't you have and, and otto's still there it's not like this time he doesn't go back to king's land or back to old town apparently because he's he's there exactly. when rainier takes the city and cuts his head off yeah <laughs> yeah uh, yeah, that's that's a great point as well. I, I wonder too. Another here's another angle to Kristen to consider as well for both of y'all is that a lot of what Allison was able to get done was because she had Kristen at her side. It was very similar to Cersei having the mountain at her side. Like people weren't going to question her decisions the way they used to because she could literally choose violence right then mm-hmm. and there. And Kristen Cole being such a ready to go violent man, everybody knows that about him, and she was able to use that right, like in the key pivotal moment at, at council. She had her way in part, yes, because she outraced her own father to find her son, but also because she had Kristen there in the council meeting to, well, to kill Beesbury <laughs> and to intimidate everybody else, including the existing Lord Commander. But if he goes out into the field, if he's hand of the king leading armies outside of King's Landing, she doesn't have that anymore. She doesn't have him right there by her side. So that leads me Making to a question decisions. we have here from Dean Brown, who asks, once Kristen leaves the city early on next season, he's gone for good, though, right? And yeah. that's the question I posed to Aziz earlier this season, which was, do we think there's a way that they could finesse things? Like, does Kristen have to leave and just not come back? Or is this the kind of thing where, like, you can leave King's Landing and come back to King's Landing? And, like, do we think that once Kristen leaves Allison, that's just the last they ever see each other? Yeah, I mean, that like, is what is happens that, in the book. Yeah, they yeah, may not do that. The book, but, like, You're right. I have to, I, I was wondering whether I think it's possible for there to be missions out and mission and that the, and, or for even for Alicent to leave or anything like well, that. Well, he does come back once. Like they go to Rook's Rest and then they yeah. come back with the head, with right. Melis' head on a spike and then he goes out again and then doesn't come back. So they do have at least one time where he comes yeah. back. But. Right. Yeah. I, that was my recollection. And, um, it's Aegon, excuse me, Aemond and Kristen who decide we need to, we need to attack Harrenhal. And everybody else is saying, that's a stupid idea. <laughs> and it is a stupid and idea, yeah. <laughs> because it is a stupid idea. And they're like, no, we're doing it anyway. Because, um, you know, like the one brain cell that Kristen Cole has, like, pinging around in his skull is like, yeah, we need to fight. And then Aemon is just like, you know. Kill Damon. Kill Damon. <laughs> yeah, so... Which isn't as... Which also isn't that smart. Like, yes, he's right that Damon is is the most 
dangerous warrior on the side of the blacks, but he's also the mm-hmm. reason the triarchy is on their side. For example, right. like if Damon's right. dead, they're like, ah, oh, we don't need, we, we got, we killed the guy that we hate. You know, we don't, do we really need to be your allies now? Like that's what Otto played off. He's like, look, I got your enemies, Corlys Velaryon and Damon Targaryen. You want to go fight them? We'll help. We can do And they're like, yeah, those, we hate those guys. But if they're both off out of the picture, then the triarchies and they get the stepstones are like, well, we don't care about y'all anymore. <laughs> we got what we wanted. Right. Right. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, question from Brandolin Price here. If Helaman is a thing, how do you think Alice Rivers works into that dynamic? Could the power she offers him be what pushes him to Mad King genocide? Super interesting question, because if Hel- if if Amon is already like has some understanding of his sister's dreaming and he runs into somebody that has like a better handle on prophetic powers that could really just give him more to think about and give him more realization about what's going on with his own sister. And this could set up the whole connection that we just discussed earlier. It's yeah. Well, uh, Mary, what do you think? I think it's interesting. Like I, so, I mean, the, the fandom read of Amen and, uh, Alice Rivers is like, Oh, we love him. We got to stay in a milf lover. <laughs> and I don't, no, I don't want to take that away from anybody. <laughs> um, but I, I do think it, it could be interesting if that's just something the history has got wrong and that's not at all what their relationship is like. Um, I I do think the most interesting aspect of that relationship is the prophetic power thing. I definitely imagine there being some kind of Stannis Melisandre vibes yeah. to that. Um, and you know, Aemon actually has, he has some big similarities with Stannis. Like, as much as they're different characters, like, they're they're driven and they kind of tick. And they're serious. Second Sons. Well, second, second Sons, sons yeah. yeah. And yeah, I have yet. that, yeah, and I have that, yeah, I have that later in the notes about the Second Son theme. And so I, I do think, um, I'm, I'm really intrigued. I think that it's, so I could see a couple different ways of it going. Like one, their relationship could be, you know, it could be less like porny than we expect, <laughs> right? Uh-huh. Um, but uh, on the other hand, I think it could also be that Amon's maybe she offers him something and he regrets it afterwards. Oh. And maybe that's part of why he, uh, you know, maybe that's a way that he relates to Kristen Cole, oh, right? Who knows? Interesting. Um, yeah. That. I think there's a ton of different ways they could play it. Like it's not at all clear how it is in the book. So it's something that I'm less than theorizing about. I'm just excited to see what they do with it. And the way Brandolin has it worded here, Mad King style genocide, burning them all. Yeah, that maybe I wonder mm-hmm. if that does play into it, that there's some sort of prophecy that she they tap into that same exact thing. Like we saw Brand have flashes of that in what was that, season six, I think? Maybe five, I don't mm-hmm. remember exactly, but they just threw that in there. It was pretty cool. Um and this could relate to that, because they're trying to tap into some of that same the same exact prophecies because it's these are supposed to be prophecies that have existed for thousands of years. So if you can tap into well, it two hundred years in the future, why not now? I was going to say that makes the, the the stakes of the battle at the God's Eye could be prophetic because oh. you have Damon, who's our anti-prophecy character mm. versus Aemon, who's our kind of pro, mm. could be our pro-prophecy character, right? So I wonder if maybe they're they're fighting over over something that, that carries over that dreams didn't make us kings, dragons did theme. Not just fighting over where the D goes. <laughs> the front of the back. Yep. Um, <laughs> I, I love all those ideas. I I do want to think, or I do want to at least 
throw out the idea that Amond at this point could be sort of like Dark Rhaegar and have oh. like you know his his wife at home and wife on the road kind of thing. Um, especially if he is someone who is you know kind of uh, motivated by prophecy. Mary's laughing at me, but yeah, that's <laughs> I, like I'm I'm always in favor of polyamory inserting it into where, where <laughs> we can. So, so polyamory that's, that's in this thought. case. Yes. There you go. Yeah, he, his, it's right Just, there. <laughs> look, look, I'm I'm a Rhaegar Targaryen's lawyer, so. You know. <laughs> Yeah, and that's that's a that's a great point about f- mixing the the prophecy and the other aspects of this too. And we even have there's another another element contained in here. I don't know how it fits in, but just the idea that this is, this is all happening in old gods' territory, the gods' eye, the Isle yep. of Faces. Heron Hall's got the tree with the slashes that Damon puts on there. That's really cool. And Alice Rivers is a strong. I mean, this is all just very mm. like eh, so many ways that yeah, I'm I'm so curious what they what they're going to do with that. I'm so curious to see how they play off the whole her strong relative thing like cuz I mean well one we don't even know really her relation exactly like was that Lionel's sister or bastard daughter or what like depending yeah, on how age how, how they go but yes I'm very curious to see what Alice thinks about the deaths of her family, about Laurie Straw. I, I, I don't know. There's so many ways that they could go with her character. Yeah, particular. will it come up? The deaths of Lionel and Harm, will that matter? Yeah. Will that come up? Like, mm. they could just not, you, that could not matter to her at all, but it could matter to her a lot. Yeah. Hmm. Good, good point. Mm-hmm. Another set of characters who are now in potential in opposition, uh, this, this is related to Blood and Cheese and Damon and, and a son for a son. Is at the end of episode 10, we had Otto coming to talk to Mazaria. And then he she kind of threatens him, right? But also gives him what he wants. But then uh, Laris comes around and burns one of her establishments. Now, she doesn't know who did that, presumably. Maybe she does. But she might think it was Otto since they just had that confrontation. And this would help set up why she sees him as an enemy now and will murder one of his great grandchildren right grandchildren yeah i'm <laughs> losing track of the family connections so what do y'all think about this angle to it with mazaria mixed in mazaria's had some changes to her character not huge changes but pretty significant ones that could presage even bigger change she's got this sort of virus angle to her where she's sort of championing the people but she's also not in t- like on a personal level she's still abusive to them so yeah, what do y'all think about about her and and maybe what you see coming in in that plot or just in general from her? Yeah, yeah, this is my the thing that I'm sort of most looking forward to how they handle um, her involvement in Blood and Cheese, mm. which is in the book. She is involved somehow. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, it's not clear how she's involved, but she's involved. Um, but also, now that they've set up, as you pointed out, this idea that that Mysaria is the voice of the small folk. Um, in King's Landing, she is the kind of, you know, revolutionary to a certain extent. Um, but you, she also has, and I think that she's going to connect uh, the the fire to the greens one way or the other, or to the crown one way or the other. And she knows that the crown is Aegon at this point, because at this point, she this is before Aegon is crowned, but she knows um, that she... She very uh, notably mentions that to Otto. So I think she's going to connect it. I think it's going to push her 
um, A, anti-greens, and B, possibly uh, allow Damon to come back into her good graces after he's been gone for so long, and that that is going to that they're going to then the two of them, however they're going to do it, um, are going to be involved in blood and cheese. I am fascinated to see how that is going <laughs> to turn out because I I just can't imagine that it's going to be it's super horrifying, yeah. but I don't think it's going to be as simple as yeah. it is in the books. I think mm. that there's going to be an additional layer of complication there miscommunication um, I, let's see how can they yep. miscommunicate this oh time? yeah <laughs> like, could no be. It's like, we no, didn't I said... say to send them blood and cheese we meant like send them like wine and cheese like a plate <laughs> yeah uh, oh, no. uh, it's just a charcuterie I, board come on you know I, but i i know you're being a little sarcastic there shea but there is something there that i do kind of want to respond to a little bit because i do hope that it's you know if it's a miscommunication i hope it's one that's someone is a little bit more culpable for like I like part of the reason that I liked Amon mm-hmm. and you know that Amon situation is because when when Amon and Vagar go after Arax like that is a bad decision yeah. and there's a lot of like he's being extremely reckless um and not really accounting for how young he is so i kind of hope that we get either you know damon doing something that's purposefully reckless um maybe rhaenyra being involved in that and then maybe just like misinterpreting how masaria will respond to that Mm. so i i just hope that there's there's some character development in addition to the miscommunication if that's the route they choose to go they could that makes sense i like that what you're saying makes a lot of sense what i came into my head as a possibility is that Mazaria will exceed her mandate yeah. and that mm-hmm. in, in, for on purpose to because she mm-hmm. sees benefit to herself or she's at a way to achieve her goals is by creating even greater friction between these two great powers she ensures well I don't know what her she ensures that she comes out ahead and the the population comes out ahead somehow. I don't know exactly know how she would steer that ship, but you could see that being like, hmm, well, if I kill the child, they're definitely going to blame the yeah, blacks I, for this. They're not going to say, oh, it was Mazaria. It was all her. It was all her right. idea. You know, that, that just like they're not going to, just like the Greens, just like uh, House Beesbury won't blame Kristen Cole. I mean, they will, but they will also blame Allison and Otto. They won't just be, oh, it was just Kristen. They would never believe that. They would never believe that it was just him, even though it was. <laughs> they're, they're always going to blame the people in charge. And Kristen, at this point, wasn't even Lord Commander. He was just a guy. They're going to assume he was told to do that. So with Mazaria, I have like kind of a pet theory almost, and it's not really something I want. It's just something I, I feel like would i don't know if it's just my bias from the law of conservation of characters and action <laughs> from game of thrones and how we were always keyed into like how they could reduce characters down or something like that but when mazaria started talking about you know her power to the people speech i just get a strong sylvana sand and essie vibe too, <laughs> so my theory is there's two there's a couple angles they could take on it one Essie and Sylvana are ladies of Mazaria's, and so they're part of that plot line with Mazaria and kind of maybe a little oh. bit pawns to her, but ultimately mm-hmm. all on the same side. The, the second way they could play it is that instead of Sylvana Sand, Mazaria takes on that role and is a lover. Yeah. I don't think they would do that, but I can't help but like key into opportunities when they might, you know, like simplify things a little bit. And when, when Mazaria starts talking about those, 
various talking points. That's exactly what Essie and Sylvana mm. were all about. So yeah. I, I, yep. yeah, I'm glad you're on the same page as me, Mary. <laughs> yeah, no, 100. percent And and you know, I was I was thinking about that it, when when I was going through this outline of the, one of the plot lines I'm most excited for is to see what happens with Sylvana Sand, and um. The, the connection with Masari is something I've definitely thought about. So I'm, I'm glad I'm not the only one that's excited about it. Yeah, like, <laughs> if I could choose, I would like to have all three characters. Like I would like Essie and Sylvana to exist separately in, 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 mm-hmm. in the same world as Mazaria. But I just can't help but be like, well, it would also be pretty cool to see Mazaria in like a lesbian relationship and like with this game in pale hair. Like that would be kind of interesting too. If you want to give Mazaria something to yeah, do. That's true. Um, it makes yeah, sense yeah. to me. Yeah. Another potential complication is most of the allies are either unmentioned or potential allies either unmentioned or both sides kind of know where the wind is blowing. There's a couple exceptions. So House Baratheon was already dealt mm-hmm. with. That was a major one. But House Tully apparently is another one. Both sides thought they could count on House Tully, and we'll have to see how that goes. We know in the long run they side with the Blacks, but there's a disagreement between the bedridden Lord and his son, vaguely Edmur um, Hoster-ish, you know, in that in that sense. As in, you know, Edmure wanted to take the field, and Hoster was like, no, you know, in his bed, dying of, I guess, stomach cancer, um, telling them to do other things. Uh, so I'm not sure there's much to say there. It's just an interesting point of conflict, unless one of y'all has a comment and sending you any expectations from the Tullys besides Muppeting around. Um. Uh, um, <laughs> we talked about this on our podcast. My hope is, my strong hope is that the Tullys are actual Muppets <laughs> and then just nobody mentions it at all. Um, they just and have like, to, yeah, just no one says anything. It's just like, oh yeah, that's Grover, that's Kermit, that's Elmo. I, I think it would be amazing. It's, um, it, it's, a, wait, it's wait, rude to talk about Muppet someone's Muppetism. <laughs> Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I super hope that there are Muppet voices if that's the case. Uh, <laughs> like my favorite bit we've ever done on the podcast is when we turned Bowen Marsh into a Muppet. That's like, right. Yeah. Well, he's already a pomegranate, so it's not you're not that's too right. far off. Only yeah. A yeah. <laughs> the one thing that was mentioned is another thing that that caught my ear was the they mentioned the Lannister fleet being crucial to the Greens efforts. Now, the Lannister fleet in, in the, in Fire and Blood is destroyed rather quickly by the Red Kraken's uh, assault. Yep. And I really, that's a big open question is whether they will include the Red Kraken at all or just as a thing that gets mentioned. I kind of doubt we'll see much of that. It feels like they don't have the budget for sea stuff, like a whole nother battle of a character that's kind of separate. Like when we dealt with the Red Kraken, in our Dance of the Dragons covers Radio Westers, we just did a whole separate episode on him because it's really detachable. You know, it is a whole separate war that happens during the dance that doesn't really spill out out of its region <laughs> and ends detachable before cracking. detachable <laughs> cracking. Yeah, they've got those arms. You know, you can just pull one arm off and it grows. It grows right back. It's true. It's true. So I think my, that might be how they handle it. It's just like, yep, th- this happened. They just report it. They say it. You know. Yeah, I, I think, think that the fact that. Um, Very quickly, the only reason I think to include it is that, you know, I don't know how they're going to handle the pacing of the next season, Mm. but there may be a reason to include that as like a diversion Mm. in order to like make the pacing of the show look better. I also think that there might be some, there are some good reasons going forward to develop the Lannister. Yeah, Johanna Lannister uh, Westerling. We would love to see that character develop. She's, she's got so much potential. 
And I think it could add some, like, I think that could add some sort of, like, gravitas to what ends up happening with, is it Jason? Or Thailand. 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 Yeah. Thailand's yeah. one who I can't... lives longer. <laughs> yeah. Jason dies pretty quick. Yeah. yeah. So I think it could add a little bit to the the whole arc of the Lannisters. Plus, the Lannisters are like a fan favorite family. Yeah. So I, Give us I could Casterly see some Rock. reasons. Yeah, and and yeah. there is that joke. Maybe it was just a joke, but Jason makes that really bad joke about women are always late to battle. And we pointed out a few times it's his wife that defends the West. Like she takes the the reins. It's like, yeah, yeah. well, she wasn't late, buddy. Yeah. So <laughs> because of that line, I <laughs> lean towards them having her. Yeah, and just because I do feel like it would it would be a pop popular i I think it would be really popular i suppose and they want to show how a lot of the women are like with the men getting killed in war a lot of the women are taking over and it's a theme you got like black alley you got lady jane who was already in charge but she's that still counts and then joanna westerling would be one of the prime examples of one who takes charge because of the war and the death of her husband and does a fantastic job and it's like look and this is so relevant, right? A woman does a good job of ruling. Hello. <laughs> you know, that's a pretty important to like the central. No, they wouldn't accept a woman as queen. So that it's a good way to show like a whole other character that's doing a good job. I think it's also tonally really important. Like what my, the, what I kind of foregrounded at the top here is my biggest concern about this series. Is it getting too dark and mm. too heavy? And it's not that that material wouldn't be heavy, but it would give us a chance for a different emotional beat, particularly if we get a story of a woman being successful as a leader. Good point. Good point. Yeah. I I agree with all that stuff. I I think that it, they wouldn't have mentioned the Lannister fleet if they weren't going to pay him off in some way. Okay. Check off fleet. It's exactly right. And (laughs) And maybe it's small, but yeah, yeah, maybe it's, maybe it's small. Maybe maybe it's just a one-off. You just see the fleet burning at anchor or something like that, you know, like that. Yep. They could do that with pretty much mostly CGI. Maybe that wouldn't be so budget intensive. I don't know. (laughs) Well, what they did, you know, what they did in episode three and second of his name was they opened with a battle. They had the main action of the episode and then they ended with a battle. Yeah. And so they could do the same thing and that would allow them Mm. to incorporate something like that um, in a, in a way that you know, again, it totally helps the show. It gives them a spectacle, um, but then lets them focus on something like more intimate and different in the middle of the episode. It gives them a, it gives a surprise too. People who are like, people know who the Ironborn are, and they'll be like, oh, the Ironborn. We forgot about them. They barely like they have been mentioned a couple times. Like, there's a time when Viserys is in the scene in episode two, and Viserys is deciding who to marry. When he's staring out the window, some of the counselors come in, and it's got that does that thing where you can it, it's got that like quasi like he's thinking. You can kind of vaguely hear what people <laughs> yeah. are in the background. They like it, it blurs away, and you can hear them talking about the Ironborn um, yeah. in oh. the background, like oh, briefly. Well. You hear them mention like blah, 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 Iron Islands, you know, and it's like the, what? What do the you? The Greens <laughs> kind of forgot about the Iron. Islands, <laughs> <so>. <laughs> kind of forgot. I was waiting for that joke. <laughs> <laughs> it's never going to die. That joke is going to be applicable yeah. so many times in so many ways. A uh, question from Eric Forg from Patreon. He says, in light of the TV version of Beesbury's death, will the storyline of the two Allens change around to allow House Beesbury more direct revenge on Cole? It's possible, but given what I just said about who's going to actually take the blame for that, I still feel like that's going to fall mostly on their vassal house. It's it's the Hightower's disloyalty here that I think they're going to be more offended by than the servant, which what they'll look at Kristen Cole is just a guard. They're not going to think of it as something he chose to do. I'm sure they're not going to be happy with him. But I'm skeptical that the Allens, who are so far in the south, will ever be able to... Kristen Cole's going to be in the Riverlands. Yeah, it's kind of hard to imagine them 
coming into contact. Any any uh, thoughts on that, or just about the the Beesbury and the way the High Towers have betrayed their own vassals with that? It's kind of an under under the radar factor and slowing their own armies uh, advance from the Reach. It's it's a pretty big deal. Um, yeah, it is a big deal. I think it's I think I think they're going to pay that off too on some level. Um, right on. And my my strong ho- hope is that we see you know. Um, troops marching to war with little bees on their their cute. (laughs) Lots of insects this season, right? Fireflies, bees. (laughs) Wait, there's other ones too, right? What am I missing? Incest and incest. (laughs) Mirror image, like Amon, Damon, insect, incest. Yeah, just... That's actually really very funny because Damon is all about the incest. (laughs) So is Amon. Well, he's not all about it. He's just, he's open to it. Uh, Brandon Price, another super chat says, like Laris slash Allison, it would be interesting if Mazaria and Rhaenyra slash Damon have that parallel and she overhears son for a son or something and takes matters into her own hands. Okay, that's one way it could happen. Now, Mazaria would actually have to like be in their presence or one of her spies might have to be. That's another way. It doesn't have to be her. It could be one of her spies that just a simple one or two. We just showed how one letter switch can change insect to insect. So changing one word can change a lot too. <laughs> Although I will note that whether if if we're saying that Mazaria goes too far here, it isn't a deal breaker afterwards. No, that's like, true. Like so, which indicates to me that it won't be that Rhaenyra and Damon are de- oh, super dissatisfied with whatever action happens with blood and cheese, because then they would just be like, okay, we're done working with you, right? Yeah, that's true. That's true. But and then she's kind of she's on her just own. Cemented in, like she's just part of their their um, little group after that. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I'm really curious about what the divergence between Rhaenyra and Damon is going to be because we do get that kind of we, we get a lot of setup for Damon being more warlike than Rhaenyra, or you know, being more of a warmonger. Now, yeah. the way the episode ends implies Rhaenyra is going to go the way of Damon, but we know from the future plot line of the books that there's going to be a split between Rhaenyra and Damon for some reason. Yeah. Um, so I'm I'm curious like how much Masaria will be involved in that. Um and you know we speculated on you know on our podcast that you know it's kind of the conventional way to go is to say that Rhaenyra was jealous of Masaria or Rhaenyra was later on down the line jealous of Nettles. Right. 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 But what if it's a political reason for the split between Rhaenyra and Daemon? And what if the alliance between Masaria M- and Daemon is something that, you know, is Rhaenyra going to go along with it? And there's pros and cons either way. Like, I I don't want Rhaenyra to come out of... I, You know, I like the idea of Rhaenyra having a little bit of a corruption arc. Um, yeah. Because I think she gets that in the books. So I'm not... You know, I'm not saying that we want to paint her as like an innocent angel, but I am really curious what direction the show is going to go with that. Yeah. I wonder if it's going to be just directly related to power. Like it seems to be the power is what goes to people's heads. Like it's going to happen with Aegon, most likely. Um, Viserys is going to look like an exception, which is one of his good qualities that it didn't necessarily didn't go to his head. It seems like Viserys is like that's one of one of the good one of his best qualities is that he never really, even when he gets really angry, he he doesn't get like all crazy and call for the deaths of everyone or whatever. Like that's, that's, he has a restraint. Let's put it that way. That's a good thing. Good quality for a king or queen to have. Um, 
and we will not necessarily see that quality in these future leaders. Uh, I mean, they, they're not faced no, with the same challenges, but still, the dispositions of these people is very different. <laughs> he didn't necessarily impart that in his uh, other members of his family, did he? Hmm. Let's talk about the concept of destiny. It's brought up in for Luke, and it's very tragic that his destiny ends up being just to die to start a war, apparently. Uh, not entirely what anyone had in mind for that. But destiny, interestingly, only appears ten times in the books. The word destiny or destined. If you include, rather, um, if you include non- ironic examples of the word destined then it's only like 12 it's only like 12 13 times the entire series there's a couple times where it's destined is used like not in a prophetic way like melisandre says the free folk are destined to be extinct you know it's like okay well that's just like a prediction from societal level prediction it's not necessarily a like i've seen the future and there will be no wild you know she's just it's like that's more of a socio prediction rather than a, I mean it's a little of both because she's also saying the, the the winter coming and all that. Still, you get my point. It's when in, in terms of supernatural reference to death, destiny. There's only about a dozen in all the books, but they are all very similar to this, and they all are almost entirely ironic, like this one was. For example, season three, episode eight, Stannis to an imprisoned Davos. We don't choose our destiny. What is the life of one bastard boy, <laughs> Luke, uh, against the realm? Of course, in this case, he's talking Gendry and, you know, maybe his own daughter, who's not a bastard, but later that'll come up. And then it's nearly the same comment in A Storm of Swords, Davos 5. This is the equivalent book moment where he says, we do not choose our destinies, which is pretty much what Rainier says. Yet we must do our duty. No, great or small, we must do our duty. Stannis Davos is like, mm. And of course, both these scenes happen on Dragonstone as well. They're all they're happening in the mm. same place. And under somewhat similar circumstances, Stannis feels like the throne's been stolen from him. Rainier, of course, a lot more has transpired since that happened, but pretty similar still. Quentin Martell, poor guy that he is, as just before he dies, he says, this is my duty, my destiny. <laughs> it's like he's parroting Stannis and mm. gets burned Aww. to death. <laughs> Fittingly, the man who burns people to death, Quentin, gets burned to death by a dragon. He also thinks that and my own destiny. I am a prince of Dorne and the blood of dragons is in my veins. So these, I just read you like half the examples of the word destiny being used in all of the Song of Ice and Fire and they're all just like, ah, you know how George <laughs> is with, <laughs> with destiny. <laughs> so destiny and death intertwined. Um, I think you mean destiny. Destiny. Yes, for George, it's <laughs> destiny. <laughs> nice. That's a good one. That's good. So, Interestingly, the word destiny does not appear in reference for Danny, John, or Bran. Mm. That, that's fascinating. Yeah. So I, tell us what you think. Responses to this uh, this data. <laughs> so Danny isn't Destiny's child? <laughs> she is. Uh, she's also not a survivor. No, she is a survivor. She's a look, survivor. Look, let's not. Let's not. Let's make sure that we're respectful of Beyonce. Houston, as <laughs> a Houston resident, I've got to be she's respectful of Beyonce. A, she's a queen. Danny's a queen. They have that in common, you know. That's right. I don't think Beyonce's ever you know, had one burn, though. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I think, you know, Destiny is probably one of my favorite, I think, master tropes or themes in A Song of Ice and Fire. To me, it's like a prism. Mm. You look at destiny, you look at it from different angles, and you see something different. You see a different way that it drives the characters in the books. 
in a, a lot of instances, destiny is like the self-centered version of prophecy. Oh. In the case of Quentin Martell, in the case of Stannis, it's main character syndrome. It's the belief that you yeah. are the, the you know the protagonist of reality. Uh, and <laughs> it's interesting how the show might fold that in with uh, by the show, I mean how Hot D might fold that in with the self-importance of a lot of the people that are second sons you know the Mm. theme of needing to prove oneself but also for people who you know inherit their birthright the theme of people believing that they deserve more than they have or that they're overly entitled how many characters believe the comet was about them that was (laughs) right yeah (laughs) well and and the the comment being about them, it's the same as people believing they're entitled to sit on the Iron Throne. Mm. Um, and so I think that to go back to the idea of destiny as a prism, this is the big picture stuff of tragedy uh, and the different angles that you approach, uh, approach tragedy from. Is destiny that you're legally entitled to something. You know, that's certainly what Stannis thinks, right? Yes. Uh, Is is destiny justice? That's what Daenerys thinks, I I would say. She believes that she should sit the Iron Throne because she wants to break the wheel. That's show Daenerys, for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, is your destiny to fulfill your purpose in life? Uh, I think Amond and Jon Snow both think that, that mm. duty is destiny. Yeah. Uh, is destiny claiming your inheritance? That's what Vaymond Valerian thinks, <laughs> and that's what leads to his death. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. um, is destiny fire and blood? Is it the will of your family members? That's what Rhaenyra thinks. Or is destiny, like we talked about before, Quentin Martell's self-delusion? Is it a way to cope with a life that is meaningless and makes you feel powerless? Is to project some sense of your own importance and destiny upon it? Um, this is truly one of the things that I think that George R. R. Martin does the best in A Song of Ice and Fire mm. and Fire and Blood is that he takes a concept like you know, destiny and inheritance and breaks all of that down in a bunch of different, really significant thematic ways. Uh, And, you know, like you said, Aziz, he makes it kind of like ironic. (laughs) Um, It's, it's this twisted, tragic version of what destiny means. Um, (laughs) In a sense, that's the one thing we're only, the one thing we're all destined for, for sure is death. <laughs> That's the only That's thing we right. can be certain Speak of. Speak for yourself. Yeah. <laughs> Speak for yourself. <laughs> yeah, I'm a, <laughs> immortals over here. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Um, yeah, I love it. I think I think we're going to see a lot of that with Alice Rivers and Eamon, mm-hmm. like we alluded to before. Like it, that's interweaving the theme of second sons, the theme of destiny and prophecy. Uh, and, and I think definitely we're going to see this theme played with throughout uh the the next season that's super well said good said well point what, what about you clint what do you have to say about <laughs> destiny so the way that i i agree mary that was great and it reminds me of my favorite one of my favorite quotes by abraham lincoln where <clears throat> he says we all declare for liberty but in using the same word we do not mean the same thing oh. and the same thing can be said about destiny mm. right like liberty is this like 
concept. It's this big concept freedom, you know, that if you are motivated to, you can wrap it around your own particular ideology, your own particular wants and needs. The same thing is with destiny. It's just, it's a, it is a prism, a cipher, a thing that like, you know, can make it, can be made to look like you want it to look. And I, I, I love how, as Mary points out, George weaves that into this book series as well as the show has played with it. Well said. Y'all are very good at this, my friends. <laughs> Let's have a little halfway break here and we'll come back to talk about prophecy. Then we'll talk a little bit about the portrayal of motherhood and childbirth and then some things we're looking forward to in season two. And and if we have time, a few legal questions as well. So let's uh, <laughs> see what we can do with that. Uh, this, I would like to remind you all that the official Lord of the Rings Rings of Power podcast is available now. It's only been out for less than a month now. Each episode corresponds to an episode of the show. They go behind the scenes to talk about the world building, the characters, a lot of the decisions some of the actors made with how they wanted to portray their characters and each episode as well has the exclusive has exclusive interviews with actors and the showrunners and of course it's going to include a breakdown of the incredible season finale when you get to that point each like i said each episode corresponds to an episode of the show so you've got eight episodes of the podcast eight episodes of the show felicia day is the uh, podcaster she's the lead the host she is super enthusiastic she's been a lord of the rings fan since she was a child so the enthusiasm comes off as very genuine she's very much into into the show and the lore and the books and all that and uh it can be infectious. <laughs> I've listened to the show and I admit I got a little caught up in just how excited she is for it all. So that's good. She's doing a good job. You like to hear that. You like enthusiasm. It's it's hard to fake enthusiasm for something that you have to do that much, right? I'm <laughs> so meh on enthusiasm. What's yeah. that? I'm meh on enthusiasm. <laughs> Enthusiasm's boring. Uh, <laughs> you can pay me to get enthusiastic. <laughs> So watch the Rings of Power on Prime Video and listen to all eight episodes of the official Lord of the Rings Rings of Power podcast for free on Amazon Music. And you can do that through the Amazon Music app, which you could download right now. Another question from Brandilyn Price. What if Alice sees Brendan Rivers in the flames and thinks it's Aemon? That would parallel Stannis and Melisandre very well. She's looking for the three-eyed raven or whatever he's actually going to be called. And hey, he's a one-eyed dude. And has Targaryen blood. And yeah, like we've seen bigger prophetic mistakes than that. And they actually have a little bit of like physical resemblance. So that's a pretty, pretty interesting idea there. I, I got to admit, I hadn't thought of that. And we love this idea of visions of people mistaken for other people. We've seen, we've, we've entertained that in the fandom for years with the idea that, let's say, Ares was actually seeing Danny or Arion who drank wildfire was seeing Danny or they were all seeing Danny and thought it was them, which really feeds into our whole thing about destiny and making yourself the main character when you're actually dreaming about somebody else. Clint, what do you, what do you think of this? It's a pretty good theory. I love this idea. And I, I love the idea of, I mean, I hope they do it. Um, if for no other reason than I desperately want to see blood Raven on, on screen <laughs> at some wow. point. Uh, but <laughs> Even if they don't, I mean, I, I love one of the reasons why I like the whole Aemon idea is because it does bring in the um, Aemon the Dragon Knight and, and Neris idea from the future. Um, and, you know, I don't know that we're going to get a Blackfire Rebellion show. 
so screw it. Put in all that stuff. You know? like, <laughs> I, I want to see it, you know, and I, I think that they've got all that history there. So, I, you know, sure. Yeah, that sounds great. Sure. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> right on. Andrew H., getting into the prophecy topic, Andrew H. asks, given that the show established that Viserys had at least some prophetic dreams, do you think this his last conversation with Allison has implications for A Song of Ice and Fire regarding misunderstandings and perhaps possible prince that was promised? I think it absolutely does. I think they're kind of building on some things we already saw, like fitting in with the vibe that's already been given about misunderstandings, about prophecy being dangerous, about what was what was the line that Marwin gave? Prophecy is a sword that with no hilt. Or actually, Melisandre said that. Right. Marwin said the one about prophecy is like a yeah about being your having your cock bit off or whatever. <laughs> that's right. So sure, yeah, that one. There's different takes on this. Yeah, and in fact, here's a great line. Shay, here can read this quote. Um, from Amon, who is, of course, the one that we not Amond, but Amon, Maester Amond, who a lot of us thought of with Viserys' fantastic acting on his deathbed. And we, we think of Amond and Aegai dreamt I was old, one of the saddest lines in all of A Song of Ice and Fire, which was on the show. And so here's a related, this also relates to, uh, the question we just got from Brandolin regarding Melisandre and Bloodraven. So let's, let's have this, let's tie all this together here. We all deceive ourselves when we want to believe. Melisandre, most of all, I think. The sword mm-hmm. is wrong. She has to know that. Light without heat. An empty glamour. The sword is wrong. And the false light can only lead us deeper into darkness, Sam. Daenerys is our hope. Tell them that at the Citadel. Make them listen. So Viserys following his dream definitely led them deeper into darkness unquestionably right <laughs> and and then of course sticking to sam here marwin's like sam don't talk to them them about prophecy don't not do not bring up prophecy to the maesters here here Eamon's like tell them and marwin's like don't tell them <laughs> like they'll kill you like yeah it's important but they'll kill you so but try not to get too far into the sam aspect of this as compelling as that is that would that's kind of another subject it does set this one up nicely well though. what do you think about that clint no, I think it's I think it's um, absolutely in keeping with the theme of the show. The that statement in episode one, the idea that we could control dragons, was a lie, um, and like fits within. We we see that aspect of it, that sort of prof- prophetic statement by Viserys that we can't control dragons, and we see that demonstrated very clearly at the end of the season. And then we also see, as, as you guys have pointed out, the idea of prophecy and the idea of dragons used interchangeably, oft, often throughout Danny's arc, but also in the Song of Ice and Fire itself, and like the dagger, right? Like the dragon is the prophecy, is the dagger, is like the whole point of why Aegon the Conqueror invaded Westeros. And so it's it, it's weaving those themes together in the way that Mary would put would, had mentioned earlier. Um, and really, I'm really excited to see how next season we are going to discuss prophecy, because I think that they've got to, I mean, obviously yeah. they're going to be bringing up the Song of Ice and Fire a lot, but obviously they've got to talk about like, what is, what does that prophecy mean for the war? And also what does that prophecy mean for the individual characters who know about it? Yeah, how does it motivate um, and, Rhaenyra? Like, what is it? And how does she right. tell her children and things like that? Yeah, like, she's told Damon now, but... Yeah, I was still so surprised yeah. that she didn't tell Jace before he left to go north. 
that we saw. Me yeah. too. That was surprising. Yeah. Because yeah. we thought that would maybe be something they talk about. She, he and Sarah talks about, or he talks about with right. Cregan, maybe. Cregan. I wonder if she's <laughs> going to tell Alicent yeah. when, yeah. after she takes the throne. Because mm. I think there's going to be, it, the chemistry between Emma Darcy and Olivia Cook is so good mm. that um, when she takes the throne, and my hunch is, and I don't know, my hunch is she's going to take the throne at the end of season two. Um, but there's there's probably going to be four or five episodes, three or four, maybe, um, where Rhaenyra is in King's Landing, and they're going to be having these conversations. There's, they've got to have conversations, you know, like in the Godswood between yeah. Rhaenyra and Alicent. Alicent in her golden chains, maybe. Um, and I wonder if she's going to tell Alicent. That's a great question. So Mary, what, what Alicent is going to say. Before we hear from you, Mary, let me throw one little uh, detail at you to, to add to your potential answer here, which is that uh with Rhaenyra with the, the the idea of of prophecy um well let's see how do I phrase this um actually you just go ahead <laughs> respond <laughs> okay. I, I, wow, I've, I've lost my wording entirely so you go ahead and I'll ask you afterwards no I I, I definitely think one I hope we get a flashback to Rhaenyra having told Jace about mm. the prophecy because it to me it doesn't make sense for her to not have told him particularly with the mission to the north yes right. so I'm curious if that's something we might get like um but then in terms of Rhaenyra and Allison I I love the idea of Rhaenyra and Allison talking about it in part because I want to see Allison's reaction. Yeah. Because Allison will then know that she misinterpreted Viserys' words on his deathbed. That's what I was going to bring and up that I couldn't struggle right. to put into words is how Allison does at least is at least primed on the notion of this. She does. It's, it's not going to be like, oh, you made this entirely up. It's like because she at least heard Viserys talk about it, so it's not something right. out of left field for her. Well, she sort of talked about it twice because true, yeah. it's not just his deathbed. It's also in, in episode three, Viserys and Allison had that whole fireside chat. Good point. Good point. And, yeah. you know, I wish that that was tied a little bit in more at the end of episode eight, because I do think when I heard Allison and Viserys have that talk in episode three, I was like, man, this is not the way <laughs> this has a lot of potential to go really wrong. Because it, to me, it was setting up the idea that Viserys had doubts in Rhaenyra. Um, so I'm really, really interested to see how that played in Allison's mind, um, and to have Allison get this realization that she misinterpreted everything. Mm. Because obviously, no one believed her. That was one of my favorite episodes <laughs> yeah. of nine. Was. <laughs> no one believed her when she said it anyway so i would be uh it was so funny that was just darkly hilarious yeah. one of my favorite parts that's of really the good. season <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's really good i'm glad that they're both primed with that knowledge there's something they can they can discuss without one of them being like are you crazy what is you talking about prophecy and all this nonsense yeah so right. I actually do have the quote from Marwin. He says, that is the nature of prophecy, said Gorgon. Gorgon of Old Geese, who wrote that prophecy is like a treacherous woman. He says, prophecy will bite your prick off every time. He chewed a bit. Still, it's like the industry. He chewed a bit. Oh. Yeah, I know. He's chewing sour leaf. Yeah, George is having fun with that scene. And he says, still, it's like the indecisive woman meme where she's like, no, no, actually, 
<laughs> no, no, no. Uh, well, it's <laughs> a prophecy is totally like that because there's times when it's dead on accurate. Like with Cersei, like Cersei's like the major. I knew how many children I would have. It was 16, like a, a huge number, 16, 13 for, for Robert and three for her. And she knew of Robert's bastards. And then Cersei thinks years before any of this even happened, she promised me I would be queen and all this other stuff like that came true. Like, so we also, and then the ghost of high heart, like her predictions are like, bam, 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 nailed it. And, and, um, Makoro, his predictions are like, bam, bam, nailed it. Uh-huh. So right. uh, it, it's not something we can just throw away either. It's definitely got accuracy to it, but hmm, it's, it's, it is dangerous. Uh, Clint, what do you think about, uh, about this business here? Uh, I, I mean, that quote from Marwin the Mage is amazing. I can't <laughs> believe I've forgotten about it. Um, One of my favorite quotes in all the books. <laughs> oh, it's, that is, that is a, it's a panoply of mental imagery. Um, but setting, setting all that aside, I guess, like, yeah, I, 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 I think, um, I think it's going to be really interesting to see um, how they're going to talk about the prophecy in ways that are material to things going on in the show. So like, uh, and I see uh, Jamie in the chat is talking about how, you know, is the prophecy more about the dagger and less about the lineage. And I think that that's mm-hmm. kind of, that plays into the malleable nature of prophecy that we've been talking about now, because I think like the Saros thinks it's about lineage, right? Um, and less about the dagger, the dagger being more of like a, you know, um, the physical manifestation of the, the prophecy that's separate and apart from the dragons. But I think that there's just going to be a lot of conflating of that. And because of the changeable nature of prophecy, the fact that it's a sword without a hilt and it changes like flame, you're going to have issues with individual interpretations of, of what the prophecy means. Hmm. So we already know that... Damon doesn't think much of it and probably won't think much of it going forward. But, you know, let's say Rhaenyra does tell Jace or does tell, you know, Aegon the Younger or somebody like that. How are they going to think about it? Because it's a game of telephone. It's a constant game of telephone. It's like, well, wait, Grandpa said this, but wasn't Grandpa kind of crazy? sort of weird. Something's lost in each telling. It it does. It changes in each telling. And it's one of those, that's how history is. That's one of the things that makes Fire and Blood so fun is that it's like, well, none of this stuff could be true um, for a number of different reasons. But the prophecy is going to change in the same way. You know what's a really, something that just occurred to me is that Damon, you know, that Fire and Blood asks the question, why did Alice Rivers have no impact on Damon? Mm Mm-hmm. Maybe that's why. He's like, shut up, prophecy girl. I don't care about that. <laughs> Get out of my face with those prophecies. I hate prophecies. <laughs> well, that doesn't tempt him. Maybe he it just doesn't, doesn't tempt like him at all. <laughs> Maybe he doesn't yeah, like no. That's unlikely. <laughs> um, I, I want to say really quickly, I, I was staring here at my, like, Allison with the dagger Funko Pop. Oh, very nice. And it, it <laughs> made me think about how the, the dagger of prophecy is, like, this really potent symbolic tool. And it made me think about how Alicent striking Rhaenyra with the drawing her blood with the dagger of prophecy is such good foreshadowing for what ends up happening in at the end of episode eight because and and in episode nine because that prophecy is what she uses as her justification for 
going against Rhaenyra. That's true. That's right. And so her drawing Rhaenyra's blood with that, like, I mean, it has this overall symbolic kind of, you know, feeling when we saw it for the first time in Driftmark. But then that is literally one of the weapons Allison wields against Rhaenyra's claim. Hmm. It's and. I think it's also foreshadowing for the ultimate way that Rhaenyra dies, right? If we're looking at the dagger and the prophecy and the dragons all yeah. being one, there you go. During our regular coverage, Sean caught, because Sean's unsullied, as as you two probably right. know. He When yeah. the fortune teller in the Street of Silk episode was like, do you want to see the, do you want to know the Manager death? And it cuts to the <laughs> dragon head blowing flame. And yeah. Sean, Sean caught that. He's like, I guess, is that saying she's going to die to dragon fire? And we just were like, no comment. <laughs> Which is a comment. Well, We're like, what are we supposed to say to that? We're like, uh, maybe. You know, like it's hard not to give it away just by your answer. <laughs> I rem- I remember that moment very vividly as yeah. season. I was like, ah! <laughs> how did you keep your cool? <laughs> I mean, Joffrey spoils it in the main show. Yeah, uh, talking to to That's Marjorie. Right. Yeah, Joffrey. just tell Sean not to rewatch. Yeah, he can't rewatch. <laughs> and there's any. Yeah. I mean, he's seen all the history and lores too. Yeah, it's like for the, all the extras, they had the dance of the dragons, all the whole yeah. events. So of course, Joffrey is the kind of guy who's going to be posting spoilers yeah. on Maine, right? You know? It's always those young, yeah, yeah those young jerks. Just they love to spoil. <laughs> Okay, let's talk about motherhood and, and childbirth. There's, We'll start off with some lines David J. Peterson translated and posted on his blog but weren't used, and they definitely add a little bit to the the picture here and clarify a few things that we kind of assumed but maybe weren't sure about. You want to read these, Ashaya? Sure. This, these are from Rhaenyra. Yeah. Said, Visenya, my only daughter, born an abomination... Mayhaps she is a warning from the gods. She is an augury, born on the day my father died and my crown was stolen. So this is building on the questions of characters turning after family members are killed. Um, The season ended with a mother losing a child after losing another to stillbirth earlier in the episode. And the season began with the mother dying in childbirth it's bookended and of course lots of children born during the season it was a major recurring thing children and motherhood and of course in the book rainier actually blames according to the source some of the sources she blames the greens for the death of visenya of course she's also a lot more pregnant she's eight months pregnant um but uh, luke and aemon's intent is kind of irrelevant to what rainier is going to believe about what aemon was thinking and what those around her will believe and push her to do, especially Damon, who's going to take it as violently as possible, one would assume. So given that so much of the story is centered around these two mothers, the princess and the queen, after all, is the name of the story, right? <laughs> and the struggle for what will happen to their children, the survival, power, etc. Um, history books tend to be extremely male-focused, because most historians have been male throughout real history. Fire and Blood leans into that as an in-world text written by an entirely male academic body that's banned from relationships. So it's it's like George's typical turn it up to 11. So even his mm-hmm. like overly male source material is made even more overly male by which he intends to do to make points, I suppose. And this would cause their opinions to be very naive on a lot of relationship issues and a lot of female issues. So they aren't going to be able to represent motherhood well in Fire and Blood. If they did, they it would be almost inaccurate, given they shouldn't have a great idea of it. They're closeted. 
So, but in the books, in, in the show, it's the opposite. It's a hugely important thing. It's brought out to the forefront. It's front and center. It's main plot driver. Uh, Mary, you're an actual mother. That gives you perspective <laughs> that a lot of us don't have. So starting with you, the rest of us will kind of build on what you say here. Was it used effectively or authentically in this way as such a central thing and as such a diff- change, like a mirror image from a reverse mirror image from the books? I will say I've had a lot of really great conversations about how the show depicts motherhood. And that's a credit to the fact that the show is trying really hard to make this a theme. Um, So I I think that grading on a curve, they did an excellent job Um, because I don't think most shows, particularly fantasy shows care about it. Mm. Um, Part of the reason that, No, that's that's right. And how often do you see a fantasy main character, a fantasy protagonist who's also a mother? Very it's very uncommon. The only other example I have is the the Broken Earth trilogy, which so good. Should read. So good, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There and and even then there's a the the way that story works is it separates the main character from her children during the main arc of the story. Yeah. Um and so to have a a fantasy story where you act you actually see a mother mothering and fantasy heroing that's really uncommon. Mm. Um and it's really uncommon to see done well. And so that's something that, that means a lot to me. Um so I'll I'll kind of pro con it. Uh, the the con I'll start there. I just wish we had a more time to let these themes breathe. Mm. And and part of the reason is I care about it. Like as a working mom, right? I it's a theme that matters a lot to me, and I think it's something that we that we have the potential to explore a ton in Rhaenyra. Mm particularly with, you know, adult Rhaenyra when she's a mother. Um, And her choice to go back to Dragonstone, I think, is particularly meaningful. Like, we've seen her, the father of her children, murdered. um, And that I don't think we get to spend a lot of time with Rhaenyra sitting on that that choice. Um, And that's my, you know, if I had one wish to remedy the series, I really wish that we got some more time both with Rhaenyra and Harwin, mm. and then after Harwin died, seeing how that impacted Rhaenyra's character. Yeah. Because I do think we're kind of left to fill in the blanks there. Um, and those are really important for developing both her character and her relationship to motherhood. Um, I think the, the question I have about her character is, is she meant to be a reluctant ruler? Because she's not in the books. In the books she is very much portrayed as being entitled. This is my, this is, I am heir to the Iron Throne. And I totally understand why, you know, like you said, Aziz, these are maesters who don't want to see a woman, woman in power. So of course they would make her seem like, you know, as Stannis entitled as possible. <laughs> totally thinking of Stannis, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. that, that was yeah. my big takeaway. When I read Fire and Blood, I was like, man, Rhaenyra's female Stannis. And I was totally here for that because I think that's that's really interesting. But they, it feels like they're going a different way with her character, yes. which has taken a little bit of time for me to digest. Um, 
she seems to be a lot more like Viserys in a lot of ways. Like oh, yeah, someone who's point. accepted the responsibility and mantle of ruling and struggles with it. Like we got that wonderful, one of my favorite scenes of the season was Rhaenyra talking to Viserys on his deathbed. You know, well, not his deathbed, but close to his deathbed, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, um, you know, asking whether or not he intended for her to be heir. Um, and to relate that back to motherhood, well, what happens right after she does that? She brings her kids in to show them, you know? And it's it's this really interesting contrast, I think, between, you know, the demands on her as a mother, because those kids are crying. <laughs> They're not happy to be there. Mm -hmm. Um which might be because the actual children actors <laughs> didn't were not happy to be in the scene. Um, relatable. Uh, so, I mean, I don't know. All of this matters to me a lot because of how much I, I care about what I said before about Fire and Blood but portraying a woman that's a fantasy hero and a mom. Um, I bet we're going to get a lot more of it, mm. but it would have been good to spend more time with it okay. because yeah, I, I just think it's something we don't get to see a lot of. You're right. And if we get Rhaenyra gone bad next, then we haven't got, mm. I, I don't know how much time we're going to really get to sit with her and the motherhood theme, but who knows? Like point, I'm, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm, I'm curious. Um, I think one huge, huge pro for me, like one thing I thought the show did really well is show the juxtaposition between Alicent and Rhaenyra as mothers. Ooh, Alicent, yeah. I think, really clearly struggles with her role as a mom. Um, and that's important to show. Uh, I think, you know, the, the, the narrative about women is that, you know, is that, oh, you're either a good mother or you're a bad person. And, yeah. It, like what you said earlier about nurturing, like we see Rainier and nurturing, like we see her telling right. Luke he's a good boy and like, oh, like she smiles when he calls, says you're too perfect. And it's very tender. Right. Of course, they're setting us up for tragedy there. It's part of why they do that. But <laughs> still, it's it, it still counts. I mean, it's still real and authentic. Oh, it, it really is, I think. Um, And so I thought. I, again, I like the idea of the mother not just being a single archetype, of them showing different ways that women approach motherhood. I thought that was was well done. And again, a credit to the fact that they have multiple women in the writer's room and serving as directors on this show. Got to help a um, lot. <laughs> uh, and I think you, you can you can absolutely tell from the way that a lot of these things are, are shot and, and written. Um I think too that that choice to make childbirth fraught and give multiple views on how that affects mother's agency that's really important. Mm -hmm. So that we book ended the season with the death of Ama Aaron and then with Rhaenyra like still birthing a child child. Um and those are I thought really good examples of showing how motherhood can make you feel powerless and can literally make you uh, like, obviously Emma dies. Right. And in mm -hmm. that scene, the, her lack of agency is a huge part of that. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things I think that this, this show has done really well is sociological storytelling, mm. showing how motherhood sidelines mothers and Childbirth is one great example of how the show has used that sociological element 
we see the maesters ask in episode one, the maesters ask Viserys to make the choice about whether Aima lives or dies. And then we see, in contrast, Rhaenyra making these decisions in episode 10. But it's not enough. Even though Rhaenyra is making that decision, Damon is still on the war council calling for war. He's doing and things, Rhaenyra- yeah, while she's sidelined, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I think um, that's something uh, Emma Darcy talked about in their behind-the-scenes interviews. Some of the directors talked about in the behind-the-scenes interviews that it's a deliberate choice to show Rhaenyra as powerless in this this moment where the most important political part of her life is happening. She's literally sidelined by childbirth. Um, and so... To me, that was a really beautiful moment of, again, of sociological storytelling, of showing how not just society sidelines mothers, but how it's this really impossible conflict between trying to be a a powerful woman and be a mother. Uh, And I, I loved it. Uh, I thought that was really well done. And when I say I loved it, I mean it hurt me in a million different ways (laughs) yeah um it's something we see with allison as well like look at the time that allison spends having to clean up aegon's messes Mm -hmm. um instead of furthering her own agenda like in her own power she has to clean up uh, aegon's you know rape of one of the serving women and that causes tremendous difficulties for Allison. Um, she also deal with Otto and Laris who Oof. don't respect her. No, um, they don't. They do not. <laughs> so I, that is all to say, I think that I'm not, you know, I don't have like a definitive verdict on whether the show has been effective or not, but I think that they're doing just so much a better job than Game of Thrones. Uh, and I think that they're being really deliberate about how they're trying to make this not just a story about individuals, but about how patriarchy affects mothers. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that is, that's part of why I think the story is being told authentically. That's really well said. Thank you for all that. You know, one one thing to add before I turn it over to you, Clint. Yeah, I think that the idea of being sidelined, I think that's a really great thing to highlight among many things you said really well there. And that's an excuse in the real world a lot that people use to hold women out of power saying, oh, well, this is inevitable. They're going to be sidelined. So don't give them power mm-hmm. in the first place. Right. <laughs> and it's an Ouroboros, though, like yeah. it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's because we've defined gender roles in a way where the woman has to do the thing, mm. <laughs> the parenting thing instead of the man. Yeah. Mm. So Clint, what's your uh, what's your what do you have to add to this? Well, I, I don't want to say a, a whole lot because I, I'm not a mother, um, I, but I did have a mother. Um, <laughs> <I still do. laughs> um, and there are some things that um, really connected with me. And I know that we all talked about how Allison wasn't necessarily the most nurturing mother, um, but there's that one scene where she's talking to Helena about her bugs. Um, and it really connected with me because I, I remember my mom, you know, kind of asking me about my Transformers <laughs> in this way that she's like, okay, tell me which one is Optimus Prime. Like, she didn't care. But, she's trying. But she was like, you know, trying to be engaged with her weird bug girl um, daughter. And I thought that that was, I thought that that was real. Um, and 
um, not heartbreaking, but one of the things that made was endearing to me about the show. Similarly, um, and Mary talked about the the horrors of or the how childbirth is fraught and it can be horrific in this particular um, setting. But one thing that you know I really appreciated about that Joffrey's birth scene with that you know long shot of Emma Darcy you know giving birth is they included you know the afterbirth um, mm. they showed they depicted the afterbirth which is not a thing that really Don't you see, see in television mm. or you know movies or anything like that it, but it's a real thing that happens. Um, and I appreciated that they were like, no, 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 we're not done showing how terrible it was. They really go through like, the afterbirth and her long walk and that she's bleeding the whole time. Just, you know, really highlighting it and underlining it in ways that I think are really powerful for, for and, and in contrast to Game of Thrones, certainly. Um, but uh, in contrast to like most media, quite frankly, is you just don't see depictions of birth like that. Right on. In well, India. I, it, I think it's totally right. And I, I just want to say, like, I part of the reason I I loved episode six, part of the reason I loved episode six was that we saw Rhaenyra be this person who could go through birth. And I think it told us a tremendous amount about her character, mm-hmm. that she could give birth to a child and still make the decision to go face Alicent. Um uh, I thought that was just amazing, amazing character development for her. Right on. Uh, super chat from Mr. Marmello from New Zealand says, it's not being sidelined. It's the main line. Bring new life to the world. Hey, that's a good way to put it right on. It should be, I guess, the way it plays out. It isn't always, but I like that attitude. That is the main line. Well, it's the opposite of, um, and I, I wanted to bring this up and I didn't put it in the outline and I'm sorry for making this go longer, but something that I remember having heard as Shea and, and other people in the fandom talk about before is George R. Martin's Dead Mothers Club. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that is being sidelined. To be sidelined is to have the Dead Mothers Club where the mom dies and that's the end of their story. Mm. Um, but that is not this show. This show is not the Dead Mothers Club. We're getting... Even though Emma died, her story's not over because right. we see Rhaenyra acknowledge her memory because she's a named character because we had a whole episode honoring her. Um, and so that's, again, to not be sidelined, to be mainlined, we have to tell the story of women. We have to tell their stories and make, make mothers part of the story. And that's something the show is doing. Well said. Again, you're on fire, Mary. (laughs) (laughs) Let's switch gears to things we're just looking forward to next season or in the future, because we can't always know exactly when some of these characters will be cast when we're talking about characters in certain scenes. One thing we should expect to see is return of the familiar to a certain degree, the sprawl that people are associated with Game of Thrones. We didn't necessarily have that much sprawl this first season. There were a lot of characters, but they were generally confined to a much smaller set of locations. And I'd say there were probably fewer characters in season one of House of the Dragon than there were uh, season one of of uh, Game of Thrones. So, oh, sure. Yeah. And at first I was thinking maybe there was going to be like 
so many new characters in season two that it would exceed the number of characters introduced in season one. And I started to count. I was like, yeah, it's probably not that many, but it is a lot, a lot of characters. So let's start with that. Uh, question for y'all. Name a new character you're most looking forward to. This is for you as well, Shea. Uh, just throwing some names out there so people can get, uh, primed on some of the possibilities. We got Jane Aaron and Jessamine Redfort in the Vale. We got Craig and Stark and Sarah Snow. We got Black Alley, Bloody Ben and Alice Rivers in the Riverlands. We got Sabbath the Frey also in the Riverlands. We got Prince Daron and Tassarian. We got Adam, Alan, Mouse. Yes. Uh, yes. We might not get Mouse. I hope so. Ulf, Hammer and Nettles for sure. Oh my God. Essie and Sylvanas Sand. Maybe we don't get them till season three, but they're coming, I would think, or... Uh, some version of mm-hmm. them, if it, maybe they'll be combined, like Ashea said, with the uh, c- law of conservation of characters. And of course, that's not everyone. I've just named quite a few, but there's more. So, uh, Clint, starting with you, who's someone you're particularly looking forward to, and, and tell us why you're looking forward to them? Um, Adam and Alan, yeah, the two okay. of them. I think I think that the show has the opportunity to like really do something great with them. Mm. Um, and so, I cannot wait to see how they're they're going to bring those two in i'm really excited to see their characters they're my favorite characters in the dance i think oh One, well two of my favorite characters nice. in the dance um so i'm 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 just super psyched for them um yeah my i had a friend uh who's who's not a not in the fandom, but enjoys the show, has read the books, and they were not big on House of the Dragon. They're one of those people that's kind of didn't do that much for them. And they're one of the people that, that needs someone to root for. And I was like, well, maybe yeah. keep watching because uh, there are some people in season two that are going to be worth rooting for probably. And Adam Valarian, definitely Agreed. one of the ones I was thinking of. <laughs> I, I found... I- it's it's interesting. That's a very interesting criticism of the show, just as a diversion. Yeah. Because I, I didn't feel like... I do feel like there were people to root for. I do too. Uh, this is a guy who likes Conan and Flashman, who are total anti-heroes. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm like, are you sure that's really your criticism? Like, maybe you just don't like it for other reasons. And that's just that's just way the way the criticism came out because it doesn't seem consistent with some of the other things he enjoys. But whatever, he's obviously for whatever reason you're allowed to dislike it. It doesn't. You don't have to properly sure. communicate no, just, your dislike for it to be invalid. Totally. You know? <laughs> yeah. Well, and what about you, Mary? Who are you looking forward to? Um, you know, I was going to say, I already mentioned Essie and Sylvanas okay, Sand before. Yeah, yeah. I I want to give a shout out to Jane Aaron. Um, yeah. The speech that Jane Aaron gives about wanting yes. dragons in Fire and Blood is one of my favorite parts of the book. Um, so I'm really excited to see her. I'm excited to see the veil. Um, I'm excited to see, um, I can never keep them straight. Is it Bela or Reyna that goes Raina, to the Vale? Reyna. Reyna. Yeah. I'm excited to see Reyna go to the Vale. I'm wearing my Lord of the Tide San Rixian nice. shirt. So. I've got one like that too. Um, <laughs> uh, so I, uh, I think Jane Aaron is someone I'm excited to see. I'm excited to go back to the Vale. I'm excited for there to be some maybe ramifications for Damon having murdered his former wife. Yeah, I wonder if that comes uh, up. Yeah, it seems like this would be the time if it's going to come up at all. One would yeah. think. Mm-hmm. And I'd love to, I'd just love to go back there. Um, and again, Jane Aaron is a, a fascinating character, so I'm excited about that. Nice. Well, Jane Aaron like calls out Damon in her speech. She's That's like, right. yeah. I'm not not a fan of your mother's choice in concerts. <laughs> I want that speech. I yeah. guess I'm just a fan of good speech. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. Well, I can't wait to see who they cast. That'll be one of the, we'll, we'll, when, when the day comes, when they announce the casting for Jane Aaron, we'll have to like mm-hmm. jump on a, a live stream and talk about it. <laughs> Ashea, who's your, who's your pick? 
Yes. Yes. She's just excited. In I'm general. excited for them all. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm like, there's a world in which I said Jane Aaron and Jessamine Redford. There's a world in which I said Essie and Sylvana Sand. But in this case, I will say Black Alley and yes. Sabbath Afray. I'm nice. just picking the third queer women couple. <laughs> that's what we got right there. Is like, if we, if you've ever been like, huh, there really aren't a lot of canon queer women in Game of Thrones mm. or House of the Dragon. Well, they're coming. They're coming. Three <laughs> couples of them. So if they don't give us any of those three i will find them <laughs> but i feel like we'll get at least I, yeah my hopes are pretty low to like see jane and jessamine or essie and sylvana or black alley and sabbath like i'm i really will feel lucky if i get one of those sets of couples that's about where my hopes and expectations are yeah. i have to say <laughs> so one of them will get at least nice well, let's talk. Uh, moving on to well, I guess I'll say mine. I'm yeah, I'm yours? really you know I'm I, I'm gonna go low hanging fruit. I'm gonna say Alice Rivers. I'm just really oh, looking. Yeah. I'm so like that's the one that I have the biggest open questions about. Like some of the other ones are not predictable, but you can kind of see how it's gonna go. Like I'm curious who the, the actor is gonna be for each of these characters. That's a big open question for literally all of them. But the prophecy stuff, maybe it's just because it's. We talked about it all throughout this episode. It's really got me thinking about it. But she's the she's the supernatural one here. Out of all these characters, she's really the only one who's supernatural, and that makes uh, that's really curious. I do kind of want to shout out Hammer. I think I think Hammer is going to be surprisingly interesting. Um, I, I never oh, thought much about him in the books, but like the more I think about how his show portrayal could go, I think he might actually be quite interesting. Like if they cast someone who's really big and intimidating, he's on Vermithor with a huge hammer, like. Remember when Bran saw Jamie and was like, now that's what a king should look like. And like, Hammer could really look imposing and dangerous and like kingly, you know, like, mm, that's interesting. But, so, so uh, can I say really quickly, and I'm, I'm, I'll go quick. But the <laughs> no. thing about you and Ulf that gets me is the maesters do not want common people to be powerful. True. They are invested in making the noble class you know, solidifying their power and making common people seem like they're ill-suited for leadership. So I'm really curious about Ulf and Hammer because I wonder how wrong the Maesters yeah. got one or both. I think them. you're right. I think they're going to come off a little better than <laughs> than they uh, than they seem to come. Yes. The cat's really trying to step on our laptop here. <laughs> uh, and he, yeah, so uh, that's a great point. Yeah, the maesters, I mean, these are the high towers support, or like the constantly feeding propaganda to the Citadel. And of course, the Citadel's like, don't bite the hand that feeds. So yeah, and that's who wrote all this stuff. So <laughs> yeah. Well, yep. just before we move on, you mentioned, you know, the casting of Hugh Hammer. Um, Henry Cavill is <laughs> hey, free now. He, is free. he would be perfect for it. So, I wouldn't say so he's, he's free. You know, unemployed at this time. Yeah, he's, no one's calling him whatsoever. That man is completely out of yeah, completely drummed out of Hollywood. Yeah, that's what happened. <laughs> so let's talk about somewhat related plot line slash region you're looking most forward to. Uh, I've got the North, Pact of Ice and Fire, Vermax and Winterfell, Jace and Sarah. Cregan, we got the veil. We talked about some of that stuff. The speech you just talked about that, Mary. That's a really good one. Maybe they bring up Ray Royce. The Riverlands. We haven't hardly mentioned that to this point, other than to mention the Muppets. We got lots of war going on there. Bracken versus Blackwood, Damon and Heron Hall, and of course again, House Rivers and Amon. That's a. There's a lot going on there. That's going to be a long term one. 
We got King's Landing in the Crown Lands, Aegon's Reign. What's he going to do? We got Kristen Cole's Hand. We got Rook's Rest and Duskendale. Like, those are going to be spectacular. Shit. We got the Dragon <laughs> Seeds, y'all. The Dragon Seeds are going to be crazy interesting. Do y'all remember that there's even two of Rainier's ladies in waiting tried to get on dragons? Like, that's just like a footnote hardly mentioned. Some, yeah, there were attempted women Dragon Seeds beside Nettles. Of course, they most likely died, but. Um, yeah, can I go ahead and say my answer then? Well, I'm I haven't just, even named all these. No. I'm almost done with the list, so okay. you, we'll start with you there. Uh, Eric and Eric? Ah! Battle of the Gullet? Whoa! Uh, the West and the Reach, the Battle of the Honeywine, the Red Fork, the Fish Feed. Like, most of this could be in Season 2. I mean, damn. Okay, so share out of all that. I really want to see the Dragon Seed montage, because I really have this, like, clear visual image of, like, a montage going on yeah. of, like, yeah. I-, I just really want them to play it for comedy for part of it. Like, I think it could be really very, very funny, and then turn, like, on a, like, on a nose, turn to be like, oh, oh, this is, this is dark, or this is really moving, and, like, when Nettles, do- I don't know. I feel like it could be a really, really good sequence, I guess. It needs to have that song, you're the best <laughs> around, no one's yeah. ever gonna keep you. <laughs> Clint, yeah, like ahead. an 80s ski movie montage. <laughs> yes, the ski that. movies. That's exactly what we need. Yes. <laughs> okay, so uh, what's your pick, Clint? Your favorite? What's? Uh, I know it's a tough choice out of so many amazing options here, but so um, part of me wants to say Battle of the Burning Mill because I think oh, that yeah. that's really going to be fun. And and Shay talked about um, uh, Black Alley being introduced, and that's where she's introduced in the show. She's like picking off. Brackens, you know, from, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> from 50 yards away. Uh, so I'm excited. I hope that they do that. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think the, uh, and I don't want to talk too much about it, but I'm, I'm so excited to get back to up to Winterfell mm, like, yeah. and, and meet mm. Craig and Craig and the stallion. And we'll get back to Winterfell and that does, you know, hear that stark theme as Jace flies up there. I just, I'm gonna lose it. Odds that it's in a trailer, like 100, percent right? You know, the yes, dragon flying in really, <laughs> Mary, what's your call here? <laughs> I can't believe that Clint did not say I Rook's rest. <laughs> um, I'm I'm really excited for it. I mean, I think they've done an amazing job developing Rhaenys as a character. Um, so I'm I'm really excited to see that. I want more dragon battles. I'm basic when it comes to that stuff (laughs) uh and i think it's gonna be just an amazing combination of like visually stunning and emotionally powerful um i'm curious where it's gonna hit in the season um so yeah like rook's rest is the thing that i'm probably the most excited for Nice. Uh, Clint, you know, what's funny is I, I was a guest on Game of Owns, and I said Battle of the Burning Mill <laughs> for oh, my nice. pick. Yeah, I thought it was a, a slightly obscure, and there's a chance they don't do it, but I figure, oh, it's going to be so cool looking to actually have like a burning windmill yeah. and all this. <laughs> like, yeah, they got to have, they got to do that. They got to do that, right? What I'm more sure that they're going to do is the Battle of the Gullet. I'll pick, that's kind of low-hanging fruit. It's it's probably going to be the most spectacular of okay. the stuff next season. So I'll go ahead and pick that. The, they'll, they'll be up to five dragons in the battle. There'll be lots of ships, and both those things are expensive. The budget will be... They'll put a lot of the budget into that one. <laughs> Probably the biggest budgeted episode to date um, uh, of this show. Maybe not if, include, maybe not if we include Game of Thrones, but it might. It might beat even some of those ones. We'll see. 
what about existing characters, like their season two arc? Um, that's a smaller group to choose from. We've gotten a little more, Amond. maybe a little more idea of what's going answer. on with them. What's Amond. that? Damon for you? No, Amon for Amond. you. Okay. You know, I'm says I'm not saying Damon. You know me. <laughs> I, wait, I'm, I'm team Amon, not Damon. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I just didn't hear you right. But okay. yeah. well, you, you, you should <laughs> have known. You it, is sur- it is not surprising to hear you say Amon. You're right. That is what I should have known. <laughs> no, I, I'm just going to say Damon, but also, I, I mean, Amon. I, yeah, really, see? I know you have to say it that time. But I also... <laughs> I'm cautiously hopeful for Bela and Reyna. I'm oh. a little bit concerned mm. that they will continue to get short shrift and I'll just be disappointed again. I have to say, mm. I am a it's little possible. concerned that like... Yeah. Especially Reyna. Especially Bela Reyna. I'm a little less worried about, but Reyna, yeah. I mean, but, yeah, anyways, I, but I feel like yeah. if they should really come into their own and be a real focus on them as regulars and like I feel like Bela will really carry things. So I don't know, but we'll see. Hope so, hope so. Uh, Mary, what about you? You know, I think Allison. Nice. Um, okay, cool. I have, I, as much as I love Rhaenyra and the Blacks, like, I have loved just all the political power dynamics between the Greens. Uh, and I think Olivia has been amazing. So I'm just really excited to see what happens with her. And one thing I realized after the season was over and I went to like go re-listen to you know the chunk of fire and blood that's between the end of this season and Rhaenyra taking the throne is there's not a lot of Rhaenyra and Alicent in it Mm. um it's a lot of their children it's a lot of like the men around them making decisions so I'm I'm really interested to see you know what what Allison's role in all of this is going to be, uh, you know how right or wrong Fire and Blood got it, um, and and I just I, I just think Olivia Cook's portrayal is uh, it's it's just been so much fun to watch. So yeah, yeah, that's, that's part of it, right? Just looking forward to that particular actress or actor in whichever case. Clint, who's your pick? Uh, well, I already talked about Damon and Mysaria, so I will just say I and. The other side of Mary's coin, I will take <laughs> Rhaenyra um, because you're right for the for the same reasons. But she's the cent- those are the two central characters, and they one thing that I'm very sure that they're not going to do in season two of House of the Dragon is to not focus on Alicent and Rhaenyra, mm. and so Rhaenyra will be a more active player than she appears in the books, and obviously there are maesterly reasons why she's portrayed that way and so i'm interested to see like what are the moves that she makes in particular and i cannot wait my my hunch is that you know the last shot of season two is her sitting down on the throne we get the same sort of look that she had (laughs) at the end of this season maybe a tear down you know like down her eye and then like the camera pans down and her hand is cut, oh, like her father's yeah, was. Yeah. Ooh, I like um, it. That's my hunch. I like it. So. That's really good. That's really good. One of the really good points, Clint, that you brought up about Rhaenyra is, is she going to ride a dragon more than she did in Fire and Blood? Ooh, and so that's one of the Rhaenyra points I'm really excited to see that's is, are we going point. to see her, yeah, doing that, that stuff? Like, she's the first thing we see, riding a dragon. I mean... Yeah. And by the way, speaking of that, but back to your point you made like an hour ago, maybe Mary, about about um, maybe they'll do Jace and the prophecy in a flashback. 
Mm. A way that may have been set up was with the Great Council scene. Because that is Emma Darcy narrating, mm-hmm. talking yep. to her children. I totally agree. I, I, I tweeted about that after the first episode. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so that is, there is a little bit of, like, that groundwork. It might be for some other reason, but it is there. Uh, it could be used for that. What's your answer, Aziz? My answer, I'm going to say Corley's. I'm going to say Lord Corley's oh, because God. I think yeah. he's going to he's going to have a very different style arc next season. He's going to he's been sort of stoic, ambitious. We'll say this season. Next season, he's going to lose his wife. He's going to have to make a lot of difficult decisions. He's going to have um, some kids come gonna show have, up. Yeah, he's going to have Adam and Alan come around, and maybe Mouse. And he's going to talk to Alan or talk to Adam about trauma of after the Battle of the Gullet. So there's going to we're going to see a lot of different modes for him that we haven't seen. Um, so I'm looking forward to the character being a lot more dynamic and being a lot more involved with politics because he's more like. On the outside, like, hey, I deserve this. And then when he doesn't get what he wants, he leaves and goes to the Stepstones. So he's not like, he isn't really intriguing that much. He's more of a, a straight warrior, right? Commander. But now we're going to see, like, the political side of him as he makes some maneuvers. And uh, besides the more, uh, greater emotional beats we expect from him, given his losses and, and new, new stuff that's going to arise. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, small little mention here uh, from Philip. Hey guys, do you do y'all think they will have Cregan come south sooner than in the book? It's definitely possible they just have Cregan be Roddy the Ruin and not die at Tumbleton and just be around. I kind of hope yeah. not. I wouldn't. That wouldn't be the worst change. But I like the Roddy the Ruin death charge. The old Northerners coming to die. Like instead of going out to hunt, they do this. It's the same thing, <laughs> you know, but a lot louder and bloodier and, and maybe even more glory. Well, definitely more glorious. Uh, but I mean, they don't have to, I mean, they can introduce him and have him be up there and get excited about that, but it's definitely possible. What, what do y'all think? Uh, Clint, what do you think? Um, I mean, I, I hope so. I, I mean, I want more of Craig. And <laughs> Craig and the and stallion. I, I think it would be cool, really cool if it were like, if they were, you know, if he was passing by Black Alley at some point Ooh. and she's like snuggling up with Sabbath of Frey yeah. and then he's like, hey, that's kind of cool. And then, you know, moves on. <laughs> they that's wink kinda... at each other. Or they just notice each other. Yeah. And make eyes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what do you think, Mary? Yeah, I... You know, I think that there's probably going to be ways to fold his character in without even having him come south sooner. Like, if you just consider the pacing of how this season has the like the show has to go, so I I don't know what they'll have him do, like specifically plot wise, but I do think we'll see more of him more consistently. Okay. Yeah. It, it could be interesting to see. Uh, they, they, it seems like one of the more tempting characters to add more of for, for them as showrunners, like Stark. He's a Stark. He's a badass. I don't know. Maybe we should use him sooner. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Clint's got a point there. Like, yeah, just use him more. Why not? Why not? Um, here's a funny thing I noticed. Stefan Darklin, the one with hair of the two Kingsguard that were uh, forced to kneel in front of Caraxes mm-hmm. and Damon. Well, Stefan wouldn't, wasn't that intimidated, apparently, if they follow the book. He's the one that tries to mount sea, well, one of the ones that tries to mount sea smoke, clearly before Adam Valerian succeeds. Yes, yeah, so when we watched the episode, like, I, I Damon 
takes puts it in front of Caraxes, and I like exclaim to Aziz because I really thought that Damon was just going for it right there, and he was that was what his. I mean, it really makes more sense to me than what he did, which seems really stupid uh, <laughs> to be honest. But like, I thought he was gonna be like, "You want to see what loyalty is? I'm gonna try to get these guys to tame a dragon." <laughs> but I, and no, that was not it. But uh, that would have been cool. Uh, that that would have been awesome. But no, he was like, yeah. "Let me just scare you." weirdly i don't know i didn't like that scene i was solidly anti damon doing that uh, i thought it was weird yeah that was um, that was far too authoritative that was not leading from love that was the I mean, old love and fear, the fear and love, from love. it just wasn't effective to me really no, it didn't, it didn't seem but effective. uh yeah so i thought maybe like he was swarm. trying to again because we'd seen him have doing we see him with the thing with vermithor so i really just associated damon with like trying to get people to tame dragons so yeah, I yeah. wonder what interaction like if Damon is kind of one of the ringleaders of the dragon seed taming stuff, and and if oh you know, like he has to be like I yeah think. he's like the ringleader, and so then Stefan comes up and he's like hey you want to see some loyalty <laughs> try to tame this dragon <laughs> be fun <laughs> all right let's let's go to our last section legal regals I've called it we can't have on learned hands and not talk about things like precedent and <laughs> the various inter- interesting aspects of the succession from a legal standpoint now obviously it's not all the same as the real world there's some differences but a lot of it's applicable it's the same style of thinking conceptually there's a lot of similarities a lot of overlap starting very basically uh, to me it's always been maybe a little bit of gray area if a king can dictate their will well how can they really override the wishes of the person that becomes king or or, or does their word still have effect after their death it's kind of a strange conceptual thing for myself and maybe other people to to grasp like why do they have to follow the word of someone who of a dead king if the king's will is law, but they're not alive, and you have a new. Yeah, how does twisting me all up is easy. It okay. is kind of it, it's, yeah. it's a little confusing, isn't it? So how do how do we make sense of this? Uh, and is what Viserys did is that does it hold b- based on this kind of scrutiny? Yeah. So the thing, so you have to start with the concept that kings in in Westeros are an absolute monarchy, which means that whatever they say goes. Okay. So the king's declaration as to his particular successor has the force of law, and it is binding on his successors unless those successors, who are legally chosen by him, specifically overturn it. So, like, that's so the Greens' sort of central legal argument that Otto lays out to Rhaenyra in episode 10 is that a king can't set his own succession in a way that's, you know, contrary to sort of the custom and practice um, in Westeros. And that that central legal argument that the Greens and Otto make is one that I reject. I think that's totally wrong. And I also didn't, don't think that it has any support in the text. Um, and it certainly doesn't fly in the real world. So hmm. there, there are always and often, you know, succession crises in the real world, but nobody argues that a king can't pick his, or I, at least I'm not as familiar with, um, people arguing that a king can't pick his or her own successor because in an absolute monarchy. Right. Because this is in contrast to a situation like we have in Great Britain um, and or have had in Great Britain for the last several hundred years where it's not an absolute monarchy. It's subject to parliament. Mm. That's not what we have in Westeros. We have the king's word being law. So yeah, Viserys can pick Rhaenyra and legally Rhaenyra is the, the legal heir. 
under Westerosi law. However, and I, I, this might go to, you know, one of the questions that people have is let's say for the sake of argument, you know, Viserys did actually declare on his deathbed that actually I changed my mind and Aegon the older is the, the new heir. Um, that doesn't have that, that doesn't have the force of law for lots of reasons, but not the least of which is that he doesn't have testamentary capacity at that time. He's high on drugs. He's <laughs> literally about to die. That's just not how it works. Okay. Does that make sense? It does make sense. Yeah. I was definitely wondering what that last part, like he said, okay, I won't, but of course he, it's not really what he said. It's what she interpreted. Right. And how that would work if there weren't witnesses and yeah, whether he's, whether the drugs matter. I mean, we know it would matter in the real world. You can't uh, account, it but in this Westerosi law, does it account like they have laws like, uh, or I don't know if it's a law or just a, a belief that, um, what is it? Consent by the sword or, uh, you, you can't, uh, oaths given at sword point aren't binding. Yeah. They say that multiple times, multiple times in the, in the text. Yeah. So that, that would, we would, we would take that to be a legal thing, not just a tradition. Yeah. You're muted, Mary. Mary, you're muted. I will say really quickly (laughs) now that I'm unmuted. Um, I think that one of the things um, when when we're like assessing what is law in Westeros, the thing that I turn to as a resource is, well, what would have been law under the same period in like Anglo English mm-hmm. history? That's interesting. Um, so if we're to look at like English history, Anglo legal tradition one i think our law of wills in the united states and i'm assuming in england i'm not an english lawyer so i can't (laughs) speak to it i can only speak to how it informs like american law a lot of our law of what makes a valid will and testament comes from english tradition Mm. and it comes from things that date back this far and so one of the things is that wills have to have witnesses um Mm. And they have to have a certain amount of witnesses. And that is what we would call common law, um, law that dates back for thousands and thousands of years. Uh, and it, that, that makes sense, right? It's, you know, if you think about it, the reason nobody believes Alicent is why would you believe what she has to say? <laughs> Viserys said, like, on his deathbed when there are no other witnesses. Yeah. You know, and this is something like we've been, that there's actually, there's an exception under... Uh, like evidentiary law called the dying declaration. But the only time a dying declaration is allowed to be admissible is if the person like actually has an expect, is it, it's about the circumstances of the person's death. Mm. So if Viserys said on his deathbed that Rhaenyra was his heir, that would not be admissible in court. What would be admissible in court would be if he said, oh, this person is killing me. (laughs) That's the kind of declaration that would be. So the point is, I know it sounds like really technical um, and like, oh, these kind of technicalities must only exist in modern law. That's not true. Like almost all of the technicalities that we have in like modern wills and trust law they're all based on Anglo-American legal history that dates from like the 13 or 1400s. Okay, right on. 
Now, we also have a note here about uh, primogeniture and how it seems too much is made over, or not too much is made, it seems like there was uh, some work done to exaggerate the level of precedent that existed uh, in order to exclude women from being queen here. So let's talk about that for a minute. That's certainly in pretty relevant on the book side, a little less relevant on the show side, but definitely relevant in terms of the types of uh, claims the Greens made or that to base their belief that Aegon should be king. And they cited some of these things. What do you think about this, Clint? Um, how does this all apply? And, uh, so we've this? done a lot of work on this particular question, <laughs> both in just a, just a, so much work. Nice. We, uh, the first essay I ever wrote um, was about the Great Council of 101 AC. Oh, that's cool. And <clears throat> the in-universe application of male preference primogeniture. Um, so I'm going to do just some basic stuff. Uh, Westeros practiced prior to the Great Council of 101 AC male preference primogeniture. Now that's contrasted from, and what that means is if you have a bunch of kids, um, the, the oldest son inherits, then the second oldest son. And then when you run out of sons, that's when the daughters can inherit. Absolute primogeniture is if you have a bunch of kids, your oldest kid inherits. That's like what, Dorn. Uh, like Dorn, yeah, exactly. Or like the English crown now mm. is as, is absolute primogeniture. Okay. Um, what some people think, and what the Great Council of One Hundred and One AC posits, or the idea of a of a iron precedent for coming out of the Great One Hundred and One AC, the Great Council of One Hundred and One AC, is that the Iron Throne is agnatic primogeniture, and that means women can never inherit, never, ever, ever. Amen. Like forever. Mm-hmm. Um, so we did a whole podcast on, you know, contrasting the various ways of that. I think it was episode 12 of our podcast. It was the first in our series of the dance of the dragons and the short of it. And we went, I think that podcast was like two and a half hours long. Uh, but uh, is that the great council of 101 AC doesn't appear in the text to actually create any precedent at all. And there's no real support for the idea that it did. Um, the task given the Great Council of 101 AC wasn't to set the laws of of, uh, inheritance for the Iron Throne going forward. It was just a narrow task. Mm. It was picking Jaehaerys' heir. Right. And Jaehaerys decided to do this in a political way and let the lords decide. But he could have, theoretically, after the lords decide, he could have said, well, nah, that's stupid. I'm going to get rid of that. Yeah. He's not going to. He did not. He was not, not bound that. by the decision of the Great Council. I that's think right. people forget that. He, 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 it would be weird for him to go against it. But that, yeah. that's right. That's right. Um, but even if, let's assume for the sake of argument, or as lawyers like to call it, <laughs> assume arguendo, um, that the Great Council of 101 AC was designed to set the rules of succession going forward. And again, there's no evidence that it was. But let's let's assume for the sake of argument. Their ruling could be and was, in fact, overruled by Viserys when he named Rhaenyra heir. You mm. asked a question earlier. Can a king set the rules for all kings going forward? And the answer is yes, unless that ruling is overruled. And Viserys did overrule to the extent that the Great Council of 101 AC like, set an iron president. Viserys overruled it. He, he said it doesn't exist. Like a new king and could come up I, and be like, women can never inherit again. But then the next king could just be like, yes, they can. <laughs> that's right. That's absolutely right. Yeah. And it's it's one of the Not reasons why. Not a good legal system. <laughs> no, it's a terrible legal system. But 
the show actually provides further support for the notion that the Iron President doesn't exist. Oh, interesting. It didn't exist in the books. And I, I was tell. so excited when I, when, I, uh, when I looked at that. So the text says that the Iron President, that the actual Iron President is that no woman or a man from the woman's line may inherit the Iron Throne. Okay. And that last part is important. It's not just a woman can't inherit the Iron Throne. It's a man from the woman's line. That's what the text says over and over and over again. Because what do we all know happens at the end of The Dance of the Dragon? Well, Aegon the Younger takes the crown and is universally acknowledged as a rightful monarch. Yes. He's the one in the text as the monarch. So someone supporting the Iron Precedent might argue that, well, Aegon the Younger's claim was not derived from the female line, but was derived from Daemon. His okay, father. Yeah. Right, well. And so the Iron Precedent could still work when Aegon the Younger takes the, the throne. However, the show, in a way that the book doesn't do, specifically forecloses that argument. Because unlike in the books, where what Viserys does is simply place Rhaenyra ahead of Daemon, um, and there's a ton of times in the books where Daemon is salty about Rhaenyra and Allison having kids because it pushes him down the line of succession. Farther down, so, yes. That's right. So in the books, Damon is not specifically disinherited, but in episode two of the show, they go out of their way to mention it I, oh, two or three times. The Damon has been specifically disinherited. Which applies to his children as well. That's ah, correct. Ah, very good. However, so... The, the children the still claim, have another route to inheritance. Yeah. The mother, right. yeah. Aegon the Younger's claim can't derive from Damon it must derive from Rhaenyra. Because so none of Damon's kids can have claims through him that's, because of that disinheritance. That's right. Ah. that's right. So it disproves both aspects of the Iron Precedent. Rhaenyra sat the throne, so she did sit it, what, however you want to talk about it. But her kid is sitting on the Iron Throne when she dies. And that's that, in my mind, puts the final nail in the coffin of the Iron Precedent. Nice. That's very well explained. Yeah, it really does make sense. It's and you know that this again doesn't rely over much on Earth arguments. This is just the following all the points and where they lead. Yeah, you you, you drew it out very well there. The Damon's disinheritance. Tell I totally missed that. You're right. That's not in the book. He does get pushed farther and farther down each time. There's a new child born that gets mentioned multiple times. Very good. I went That's back great. and looked because I was yeah. so excited when I when they mentioned that. I was like, why would they mention that multiple times? That's really good. And then I was like, oh my god, I'm right. I am right. Well, when we had so many exciting discussions, like I remember we were going over in the Slack, like what's the official line of of inheritance? And we had this discussion like, oh no, 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 Damon is disinherited. That means these people must go here. And it was a, it was just it was really fun to think about, I think. That's really cool. And in the books, too, I guess this would... I don't know why this wouldn't apply to the show. They haven't mentioned it, but it's there that Magor had a female heir for a while because um, he never had his own children. Yes, so he named right. uh, Erea as his heir, or was it his, her sister? I forget and, which of them, but the two, one of the twins was, was also, his heir. <laughs> right. There was also an argument before or when Anus was king. There was an argument as to who was the real heir. Sorry. Anies. <laughs> Anies. I, sorry. When an ass sat the throne. That's canonically a... how we pronounce it on our yeah, podcast. <laughs> it is what it is. The, the, there was an argument as to, what, as to who was the, the real heir. Was it, oh, and I forget the woman's name, the daughter's name, or the c cousin's name, something like that. Or was it 
Megor. Yeah. And Megor, you know, decided that for himself. Basically. Yeah, because because t- and technically Reyna was before Jaehaerys, but the rebellion, you know, it was the way the rebellion played out. Rogar didn't have Reyna around. He had Jaehaerys in hand, so he named him. And yeah, and so right. Megor named, uh, yeah, I think it was Rayella. But the fact that they were still having those arguments means that there was an agnatic primogeniture in the, in right. the first place. And like means that it wasn't necessarily strict male preference primogeniture all the time. Yeah, although the, the, so. the weird part about that is there was literally no other male that he, he could name except for the ones that he had usurped. <laughs> so for right. Megor, it was really weird. He's like, well, if I do, oh, well, I can't do that. Uh, so let me just have three women and try to, or six wives and try to have kids, but that didn't work either. So, Mary, you've got a, a bit here about legal realism and how that applies here. Let's let's talk about that for a minute. You mentioned Varus's riddle and all that. That's this is juicy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so I, I think I Clint is so excellent at being like <laughs> legally minded and setting out what the rules are. So I'm here to tell you that the rules are all made up and the points don't matter. <laughs> um, so first, I want to start off by saying we have to take all of these. I think the legal rules are really important because I think there's something that George R. R. Martin designs deliberately and they're meant to be part of the background to the story. But on the other hand, Fire and Blood is at bottom a book about how hereditary monarchy is bad <laughs> um, and how even though they're, the king might say this is who his heir is and they should people should listen to him that doesn't work all of the time um and you know uh, someone asked in the chat that why does aemond think he is the next in line to the iron throne and i did want to bring up this point about how i think the rules of male preference primogeniture versus you know primogeniture are like pretty clearly laid out in the books and i think Clint's arguments are right for what the law is, but if we look at the factors that are considered by the Great Council of 101 AC, it's not just primogeniture. They also look at a another principle called proximity, which is who's closest in blood to the king. They also look at whether or not someone is a dragon rider. They also look at the age of the claimant. Mm-hmm. And it Big ends up being Balon, this- yeah. Absolutely. So it ends up being this factorial test, this like mushy test to determine whose claim is the best. Um, Mm. And so on one hand, if we want to go by what's the clearest legal rule, you know, Clint is 100% right. That's what I think the legal analysis is. But if you look at the factors that are considered by the the council at 101 AC, I think that they're mushier and I think that they're a lot more political. Mm, That makes sense. Um, And so I think that for one, they bring up how politics influence the question of who a ruler ought to name their heir. Because at the end of the day, I think the great council of 101 AC, that is a council about who Jaehaerys should name his heir, not who Mm. he's like legally obligated to name his heir. Um, okay, so with that out of the way, I think there's a ton of conflict in A Song of Ice and Fire, in a, in Fire and Blood, about what is legal versus what is politically prudent. Mm. That is what Varus yes. Riddle is. Who do we pay attention to? The king who says this is the law, 
Do we pay attention to the man with the money? Um, do we pay attention to the priest who says, you know, this is what's like morally correct to do? Um, and those questions are extremely important for who gets to wield power. And at bottom, the law is only one component of what power is. We know that because we know people who wield power in our modern governments don't always follow the law. Yeah, they're above the law. That term has existed forever, right? That's right. (laughs) Exactly. And and who is a who it what does above the law mean if not an absolute feudal monarch? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Seriously. If there's anyone uh, above the laws, it was them. Yeah. Like like the king is the laws right. or the queen is the laws, but these feudal mo- like these lords that, that are the, the demigods of their society, they can do almost anything they want and and even even when they do things they're not allowed to do, their penalties are like surprisingly light. And particularly when they're Targaryens comparing themselves to dragons and yeah, gods, yeah, yeah, right? right? Yeah. So I think often what's illegal matters much less than what's politically pragmatic or what is just. Mm. I totally agree that Rhaenyra's claim is the legal one, but it's made very clear in House of the Dragon and in Fire and Blood that it's also a claim that she knows will set the realm on fire, that will lead the realm to war. And I'm not defending like male preference primogeniture or rule of law that excludes Rhaenyra from inheriting, but I think so often people ask, you know, they ask Clinton and I what the legal answer is, <laughs> and we'll, we'd love to give it, but that's just not always the most important question or even a full answer. And I'll say as a lawyer... A lot of times people will ask, well, you know, will the jury find in my favor? Like, can I win this case? And a lot of times the answer is not only it depends, but the most important question might not be whether it's legal or not. You know, the most important question might be, does it fit your goals? Mm, Um, And I think that's something like if there's one insight I can provide as like a practicing litigation attorney, it's that, you know, when lawyers talk to clients, a lot of what we talk about is not, it's not just whether it's legal or not. It's how likely are you to win and how does that fit in with what you want? Yeah. <laughs> right. That makes uh, a lot And of we sense. see, we see Rhaenyra wrestling with that because she knows that even if she wins, that means it sets the it's it creates war. Ash and bone. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. Um the other thing I wanted to to bring up really quickly is that I I love to like be really righteous about how women should be able to sit on the Iron Throne. But I think it's important to recognize that like women's status as second class citizens is not going to be ended by Rhaenyra's hypothetical reign. Mm. Um, I know y'all had um, Dr. Kavita Mudan. Oh, yeah, yeah so you good. guys had, you had her on too. Yeah, we love Kavita. <laughs> yeah, so I was so happy that yeah. you had her on your most recent episode. Yeah, she's great. She's wonderful. And we had a wonderful discussion uh, about just about the motherhood themes in the show, about the parentage dispute issues that are, that are kind of going on and, and how they play into the, the the broader like historical and sociological themes in the show. Um, And, you know, one thing that the Kavita brought up that I thought was really 
just really important about the influence of like history and law and storytelling is historically questioning a woman's fidelity and the parentage of her children is the trump card to get her and her heirs out of power. Mm. Um, and so when we talk about whether or not Rhaenyra is a legitimate heir, I think it's important to include this question that's leveled against her in the show, which is, well, did she like commit adultery with Harwin? Is that treason? Who is the father of her children? Um, I think that my opinion on the law is that her kids are legally legitimate because Lainor acknowledged them and Viserys repeatedly affirmed them. King's but word I is law. <laughs> that's right. But I think the biggest political vulnerability to Rhaenyra's claim are those kids, yeah. are the strong boys. Yeah. I think it's really clear in the show that it's a political vulnerability. And, you know, one thing that we talked about with Kavita on like our most recent episode is that is a, that's historically a way that women and their heirs were challenged um, and was by saying, well, that woman committed adultery. So she needs to be like ousted from the group. So her kids should not be in line to the throne. Um, and so I think that it's just an example of the difference between law and politics. But I also think, you know, there's an, there's this old adage about um, conservatism. And I, I, I mean it in a, a kind of broad sense, like not necessarily in an American political sense. And it says that, you know, there is a in-group that law protects and does not bind. And in Westeros, that's, that's noble men. The law protects noblemen, but it doesn't tell them what they can and cannot do. And there's an mm. outgroup that the law binds, but does not protect. And that's everyone else. Um, and Rhaenyra, she may be noble, but she's a woman. So she's part of that outgroup. Mm, yeah, the system works for her, but not in the, these matters, not when it comes to claims and, and power. Yeah. Mm. That's right. And that's her, her, but one of her big vulnerabilities is that her, it's not just her status as a woman, it's her status as a woman who like has these dubiously mm. legal errors is going to be leveraged against her. And that's an example of the law as power, um, as law might be about what rules are, but at the end of the day, it's also about who has the power to say what the law is? Yeah. <laughs> and it's not always the king, right? Yeah. There's a line I believe I've quoted before in on our show, maybe even more than once, would come from Pompey Magnus, of uh, the one who lost the Civil War to Julius Caesar. He said, don't quote laws to men with swords. Yeah. <laughs> it's very succinct. Okay. Like, oh, yeah, that's that sums it up right there, doesn't it? Because he broke, he broke all kinds of laws that, people like no one could stop him from breaking and he's like what are you gonna do what are you gonna do about it I'm like oh yeah like the guys of unalways sunny said it's the it's the con ultimate conversation and what are you gonna do about it like oh wow i can't do anything about it you're right <laughs> so <laughs> um my one closing thought on this is that alisan good queen alisan is another feather in her cap she was right the second quarrel they remember there are two famous quarrels between her and Jaehaerys. The second one 
was over bypassing women in the line of succession. She was like, look, you like, well, if you're not going to over, if you're not going to see the value of a woman ruler, then what do you need me for? And she leaves for like two years and they don't talk to each other for two whole years or something like that. And she was so right. All these arguments are simplified if you just use absolute or what is it? Absolute primogeniture. That's which, which is the one where just the oldest person, no matter what. Absolute primogeniture. Yeah, that one just simplifies everything. Cause then you don't get into like man, women from men from female lines and this and that. You just always go with the oldest descendant. It's, it's so a easy. much better rule. Yeah, yeah. It's still bad because yeah. it's still monarchy, but man, it just the simplification is so much better in terms of avoiding situations exactly like this. But Hey, he didn't listen to Alison and, uh, that's what happened. That's what happens when you don't listen to She's good right Queen Alison. Yeah, good right Queen Alison. Yeah. Yep. She was also right Queen Alison. Not just good, correct Queen Alison. <laughs> <laughs> Technically correct Alison. The best kind of correct. Yeah. She gets all the all the praise. Well, thank you all so much for being here today. That's our that's a wrap for this episode. We had a great discussion. Uh, I feel like we covered a lot. And we got ourselves excited for season two, which is still a long way away. But, hey, what else can we do in the meantime? Continue to talk about the things we love to talk about. And this was a great discussion. I'm very pleased. I hope you all were as well. So what is up for y'all next? What do you have coming up? What's uh, what's on tap for Learned Hands now that the season's over? And, like, what are y'all going to be doing? It's a great question. A trial episode. We're going to do a trial. We're going to try Stannis for... The murder of his brother. Ooh, nice. Uh, okay, I, that that might take a while. I think we have an episode on punishment with we're, which we're going to do with our wonderful WBA member, friend of the pod, Lo the Links. Um, oh, nice. I don't know how both both Clint and I are very busy right now <laughs> and very tired from covering the season. So I yeah. I don't know how quickly we're going to get, but to to those issues but i think those are the next two things we have on tap nice cool yeah well yeah um and in the meantime if uh, people are listening to this watching this on the stream if you want to learn more about the podcast you can go to westerosbar.org um the way we kind of drive engagement with the podcast is we ask people to give small donations to pre-approved legal charities um to you know uh you give those donations you just send us the receipt and then you get access to our slack and episode shout outs and other fun stuff which we um, are members so of history of westeros is a member yes we have a great number we are we are member number are we 420 are yeah, we number 420 you are 420 <laughs> <laughs> which i didn't understand yeah it's and, just a you know. totally obscure reference totally random number i picked <laughs> it's just a coincidence yeah mm. well yeah actually with that in mind uh thanks for y'all for coming on we're gonna send the the same uh site that we usually donate to when we uh support y'all we're gonna send a donation today for y'all coming that's a right how do you say that is it rices races i've only ever seen the word r-a-i-c-e-s that's the charity we always give to through y'all so we'll thank and and since y'all came on today we're gonna send a donation to them as well thank you that's that's very generous thank you cool um, and, uh, we mentioned a few other episodes d- throughout the, uh, our discussion today. The, we mentioned Jane Aaron and we had an episode not too long ago this year on the clans of the Vale, which gives some backstory on her. It's how she's lady of the Vale because her father and brother were killed by stone crows. Ah, uh, we've talked mm. about the stepstones quite a bit. We had an episode on that, which clears up a lot of the stuff that, that is relevant to why they're so uh, important and what's coming later. Of course, we talk about the black fire. We got lots of episodes on them. 
Alan Valarian came up today. Of course, we have a whole episode on Oakenfist. That's him. And I did have a little bit that we skipped over in this episode. I had a great thing on Vaymond, but we'll save it for another time because the, the story of Vaymond's descendants is pretty hilarious. There, they just let's put it this way: a little teaser. The ma- the complaining continues. It's funny that they dubbed him the master of, the, of complaints because his descendants just kept that tradition going, complaining about bloodlines and and all that kind of stuff. Good stuff. Good stuff for sure. We'll come back to that. Something to get excited about for later. Um, if you're a supporter of us on Patreon, we very much appreciate that. Oh, the subscription is also available on Spotify these days. You can just add it to your monthly subscription if you're already a Spotify person. You can also leave us a review. That's always handy. And uh, thanks to Michael Klarfeld for the awesome maps. Thanks to Bran Winslow for our fantastic intro with the music. He's going to be changing it slash adding it for next time around. So mm-hmm. kind of like the real intro of uh, of the show. It changes. It modifies. It evolves as One. the show does. That's yeah. right. Pretty cool. Excited. It's so good. I love it. Every time Every time I watch that intro, I get so, <laughs> so hyped. <laughs> nice. Yeah, yeah Bran did a great job. Thanks, Bran. So that's uh, that's it. Thank you, everybody, for coming. And like I said, the sh- season's over. This is the end of our coverage in terms of season whole coverage, but we will continue to talk about the show and the books during the off-season. You know how we are. We never quit here at History of Westeros. This is our full-time gig, so um, you can expect plenty more to come. And until then, Valar re and Valar re